Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and why you should wait for the commercial break to save my life. I'm Rob Woodland, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. If there's one group of people you subscribers consistently enjoy listening to, it's philosophers. I find philosophers, or at least the ones I hang out with, tend to be highly reflective, clear reasoners, and often good communicators, even by the standards of academics. Andreas Morgensen is one of the sharpest people I know, and he brings all of those philosophical virtues in spades. Here, we discuss whether ethical theories other than consequentialism should embrace or reject the effective altruist project, and whether we should be skeptical of philosophical thought experiments that involve incredibly large numbers, among other topics. Before we get to that, though, I really wanted to encourage you to check out an interview I did, which was just released on our other show called 80K After Hours. I speak with Andres Jimenez-Sorilla, who co-founded an innovative new company called the Shrimp Welfare Project. Humans farm hundreds of billions of shrimp, also called prawns, each year. And including those caught at sea, we kill them by the tens of trillions. I knew next to nothing about shrimp, let alone shrimp farming, so I was fascinated to download a whole lot of empirical information about both from Andres. The evidence that prawns are conscious and can suffer is pretty good, and Andres' team think they've found a way to improve the well-being of farmed shrimp that wouldn't cost the shrimp farming industry much, if anything, and so actually might get picked up. I'm just really happy with how the interview turned out and wouldn't want you to miss it, so go have a listen on our other feed, 80k After Hours. All right, with that out of the way, I bring you Andreas Morgensen. Today, I'm speaking with Andreas Morgensen. Andreas is a senior research fellow at Oxford University's Global Priorities Institute. A philosopher by training, Andreas studied at Cambridge before doing his PhD at Oxford and then winning an examination fellowship at Oxford's All Souls College, one of the most competitive postgraduate placements in the whole world. His current research interests are primarily normative and applied ethics, but he has previously published on meta-ethics and moral epistemology, in particular so-called evolutionary debunking arguments. Some of his many publications include Against Large Number Skepticism, Giving Isn't Demanding, Do Evolutionary Debunking Arguments Rest on a Mistake About Evolutionary Explanations, Moral Demands and the Far Future, and Why the Asymmetry Does Not Support Antinatalism. He's known among my friends for having an incredibly broad general knowledge and was among the first people to take the giving what we can pledge to give 10% of his income to the best charities that he could find all the way back in 2010. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Andreas. Thanks. I'm very happy to be here. I hope we'll get to talk about deontological moral theories. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Uh, so the most recent research project I've been working on is to do with the so-called hinge of history hypothesis. So as I'm sure listeners to this show might well know, the hinge of history hypothesis is this hypothesis which asserts that we're living at a uniquely important moment in human history. And the practical importance of this relates to this question about optimal timing. So if we think, you know, the current time is sort of unexceptional, and maybe there'll be some much more important events that occur much later in human history, you might think the best thing for us is to be patient, invest our resources and wait for this decisive moment. But if the current time is uniquely important, then maybe we should be burning through all our resources in order to influence what happens now at this you know, decisive point in time. And Will McCaskill published a paper relatively recently in this volume, Ethics and Existence, arguing against the hinge of history hypothesis. One thing I've been working on is a reply to Will's paper. That sort of replies is not especially constructive. It just explains why I'm not satisfied with Will's arguments. And the thing I've been sort of trying to think about recently is whether I've got something more positive to say about this issue rather than just being critical of Will's arguments. How's, how's that going? Um, 
I haven't made that much progress. <laughs> it's a tricky question, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I mean, one thing, I think one worry I have is that the debate as it currently exists is a little bit sort of conceptual muddled and these ideas like what it means for a time or a person to be important, the distinction between direct expenditure and investment, I think they're quite unclear. So the, mm. the first thing I've been trying to work on is just seeing if, yeah, a bit of sort of old school philosophical analysis can maybe help us to get a better conceptual handle on the best way of framing these issues. But yeah, I haven't made much headway on that yet. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I did enjoy that, that response to Wars Peace. Is that actually up on the web at the moment? Or is it uh, still in writing? It's still in writing, yeah, okay. but I, hopefully it should go up soon, yeah. Yeah, I did enjoy that one, but it definitely was in the business of explaining why Will is confused rather than staking out any affirmative view. So uh, I think it's great that you aren't going to make an attempt to, to put your own view forward so that then uh, Will, <laughs> Will can potentially try to <laughs> uh, pull your own views down and uh, yeah, it's, it's equal on both sides. Yeah. It would be an honour to have my own views pulled apart with the same scrutiny. <laughs> <laughs> same methodical rigour, yeah, <laughs> that you brought to Will. Okay, p- pushing on. The, the first major topic of today uh, that we want to talk about is uh, deontology and its relationship to effective altruism. And some listeners will know that something that's a little bit unusual about you as an academic and a global priorities researcher is that, of course, you're doing a lot of work on themes and topics that are super relevant to effective altruism and long-termism as schools of thought. But unlike many people, possibly the majority of people who are doing that, you lean towards endorsing and researching deontological approaches to ethics rather than consequentialist ones, which uh, certainly are very overrepresented among people who work on long-termism and effective altruism. Now, my personal view is that the relationship between ethical theories and the notion that we should or that it would be good for us to try to do uh, you know, as much good as we can with our career or with our life I think that that's something that many people are confused about, and I'm curious to see to what extent you agree. But uh, before we get to that one, we're going to be talking about some complicated philosophy here. So I'm going to give you license to dumb things down a little bit or to to explain things in very broad strokes rather than be completely accurate. And in that spirit, yeah, can you give like a really uh, kind of brief uh, dumbed down explanation for listeners of the difference between deontology and consequentialism? Yeah, so... Roughly speaking, you know, consequentialism is the view that the defining property of morally right actions is that they suitably promote the good. And the best known example of a view of this kind is a sort of totalist utilitarianism, which says that uh, an act is right if and only if it maximises total welfare. Non-consequentialist theories needn't deny that promoting the good is morally important, but at the very least they'll say that other things matter in determining which acts are right and wrong. So promoting the good might be one of the considerations that go together to make an act right, but other things like respect for rights, honouring one's promises, partiality to one's nearest and dearest, these are other morally relevant considerations that bear on right action. Yeah. So I suppose consequentialists have this challenge of figuring out when you're trying to evaluate what consequences are good, how do you tell what is good? So some people think about it in terms of, you know, preference satisfaction. Other people lean towards, you know, thinking about pleasure and pain and things like that. Other people might think about well-being in some more general sense, talk about, you know, people flourishing and so on. Deontologists, on the other hand, have this question of uh, how would you know what principles of right action might constrain our actions or what actions would be permissible or impermissible and why? What sort of um, theories of permissibility and impermissibility do deontologists uh, play with? So, yeah, I mean, the, the best known theory in the deontological camp, I guess, is Kant's moral theory. So Kant offers, I mean, he offers many different 
principles, which are supposed to be equivalent, but his sort of best-known claim is that an act is right if and only if you can will the maxim of that action as a universal law. It's quite difficult to know, like there's a lot of scholarly controversy about how exactly how to interpret this, what on earth is a maxim, what does it mean to will the maxim of one's action as a universal law. I think the association between deontology and Kant's moral theory is, from my perspective, somewhat unfortunate, because I think... Yeah, I'm not especially sympathetic towards Kant's moral theory because, yeah, I mean, as I said, on the one hand, it's difficult to know exactly what this general principle means. I mean, Kant in general is not a very clear writer, uh, Mm. but this feels almost especially unclear. But at least on some like natural interpretations of what it means, it seems to just have some absurd implications. So it sort of seems to suggest that you're not permitted to act in some way unless all rational agents could act similarly. Um, as Parfit pointed out, this seems to suggest that like it's impermissible to aim to give more to charity than the average person, since okay. not everyone can give more to charity than the average person. I see. <laughs> uh, so then you need some interpretation of that principle that I just described that avoids that implication. Uh, I see. And then things end up getting complicated. What's an approach to deontology that's uh, not Kantian that you think uh, is more plausible? Yeah, so a sort of view to which I'm a lot more sympathetic is a view that sort of departs from both Kantianism and utilitarianism or consequentialism by denying that there is a single defining property of all right actions. So the sort of holy grail for a lot of moral philosophers is to find some single property that separates right actions from wrong actions. For Kant, it's this thing about universal law. For utilitarians, it's maximising aggregate welfare. A sort of view that I'm quite attracted to, especially identified with the work of the philosopher W.D. Ross, rejects this assumption that there's a single defining property of right actions. It's the view that there are many distinct properties that contribute to making an act right or wrong. So there are many sources of moral reasons. There isn't just one. It might be that promoting the good is in and of itself always a reason in favour of doing some action. But there are other sources of moral reasons like respect for others' rights keeping one's promises, things of that nature. I see. So it's a somewhat more pluralistic, or it's an approach that's happy to kind of bless the mess or or accept that there's a whole lot of competing different things that we need to worry about, both in terms of like consequences, which you're taking into account, but also in terms of, you know, are are you following other principles of good action, like honesty, like uh, nonviolence and so on? Yes. Yeah, that's right. How do you figure out what those principles of good action are? How do we get evidence about that? So I think... Yeah, obviously a subject of significant philosophical disagreement, but <laughs> yeah. I think I tend to favor a, a relatively sort of mainstream approach to moral theorizing, which emphasizes intuitions about particular cases, hmm. typically sort of thought experiments to make sure that everything is sort of clean and uh, as uncomplicated as possible. Mm. Um, and then trying to build up theoretical principles based on these intuitions about these cases, balancing these intuitions about particular cases with more abstract theoretical intuitions about what moral principles ought to be like, and seeking to bring these various judgments into coherence with one another, because they very often turn out to be contradictory, which is very annoying, but helps keep moral philosophers in business trying to sort out what to do with these contradictions that we very readily discover in our moral thinking. Yeah. 
So we'll have some examples of yeah thought experiments and different intuitions that people have uh, throughout the conversation. But but as you're saying, kind of the classic issue with this approach is that very often people end up with quite strongly conflicting intuitions. I guess it'd be one thing to have conflicting intuitions across people, but then you have conflicting intuitions within people where uh, you change something that seems like it shouldn't be morally relevant. And then that seems to, or at least the, the person themselves judges is not necessarily morally decisive, but then the intuition about the, the case changes a lot. How do you try to reconcile those using this approach? Yeah, um, it's a very good question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, so one thing that I think, I mean, I guess this relates to something we'll probably get onto later, but one approach that people I think are sort of especially interested in or increasingly interested in is the idea that when we find our intuitions or our beliefs in disagreement, an especially useful thing is to step back from those intuitions and beliefs for the time being and just think about looking for psychological explanations or even deeper, say, evolutionary explanations for why we might have particular beliefs or particular intuitions, and trying to see if we can find some kind of discrediting explanation for some of these intuitions or other reasons to suggest that some of these intuitions might come from a less reliable source than others. Hmm. So that's one approach, I guess, is to reflect on the competing intuitions. And then I suppose as you try to figure out where those intuitions are coming from, perhaps internally, you yourself might realize that you think some of them are more reliable than others. And then you end up in a kind of reflective equilibrium that is somewhat more coherent than what you had to start with. Yeah, that would be the hope at the very least. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't. It doesn't often play out that way. And uh, I think we're often left with a lot more uncertainty than, yeah. Yeah, but uh, sometimes. Okay, well, we'll come back to that later. Now, though, I guess, what's a reason why you prefer kind of a deontological approach to ethics over at least a purely consequentialist one? Yeah, so I think, I mean, related to what we were just discussing, to a large extent, I think, you know, the strongest motivations for rejecting consequentialism and endorsing a non-consequentialist or deontological approach to ethics derived from just having intuitions about particular cases. So one very well-known case that some of your listeners might already be familiar with is the so-called transplant case, which I believe was originally devised by Judith Thompson. Mm. So it goes like this. You imagine that there are five people and they're dying from various kinds of organ failure. And it's possible to kill a healthy young man and redistribute his organs to save the five from dying. We stipulate that there are no additional adverse consequences from killing the one and redistributing his organs, you know, over and above the loss of his life, the mourning of his loved ones and so forth, all, all burdens that would otherwise fall on the five who are dying. And so on its face, act utilitarianism says that the right act is to kill the one and redistribute his organs. Intuitively doing so is impermissible because this infringes on the right of the one not to be killed. Yeah. So if we take that intuition at face value, then that might suggest to us that consequentialism is, in a sense, too permissive. It allows us to Mm. do certain things that are, in fact, wrong because it apparently mistakenly claims that the ends always justify the means. Yeah. Okay, so this is a pretty standard objection, I guess. And because you're in the business of taking moral intuitions about cases seriously, it's not that hard to find hypothetical thought experiments where utilitarianism or consequentialism alone gives pretty odd results. <laughs> or it suggests that we should do things that, yeah. that we don't actually feel that we should do, uh, you know, commit seemingly grave wrongs like murder in order to produce some good outcome. So that's unacceptable. So I guess you're tr- maybe trying to find some reconciliation of how far can one go in, in terms of doing good, but, or like what are the boundaries on that, of the things that we can't do in pursuit of making the world a better place because they violate uh, yeah, principles of good action that are just too strong. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so 
Many people associate the kind of mentality that 80,000 Hours has about doing good, and especially, I guess, doing as much good as possible. They associate that very strongly with consequentialism and utilitarianism. And I guess that's natural because certainly those ideas are very overrepresented among our staff uh, relative to the general population. Like, in, you know, relative to most people, I'm pretty keen on utilitarianism. And it certainly does seem that utilitarianism should imply something like you should try to do as much good as you can with your life. Do you think that's causing people to overstate the intellectual relationship between utilitarianism and trying to do as much good as possible? Um, yeah, maybe a, a sort of a bit. As I think I said earlier, like if you're a deontological moral philosopher, you don't deny or you don't necessarily deny that promoting the good is an important source of moral reasons, right? You need only deny that this is the only source of moral reasons that we have. So you can definitely believe that we have like very strong duties of beneficence and those should play a very strong role in shaping how we live our lives. I think specifically maybe this formulation in terms of doing as much good as possible without any additional qualifiers, mm. that might be something that only really consequentialists can sign on to because, yeah, non-consequentialists are going to think that pursuit of the impartial good has to be capable of being like constrained by other moral considerations like respect for rights or maybe partiality towards one's nearest and dearest. Mm. I also slightly suspect that possibly you don't really intend the message in that sense, right? When <laughs> right, you say right, that right. 80,000 hours is about doing as much good as possible, <laughs> you're probably like bracketing the possibility that, yeah. you know, there are some like high, perhaps purely hypothetical scenarios where mm. doing as much good as possible might require intentionally killing a person. You might think, you know, those cases are just actually very, very unrealistic or you as an organization don't want to take a stand on whether the ends always justify the means in that sense. Yeah, we actually do have a bunch of pages on the website where we talk about this issue and we take the stance that the uh, ends doesn't always justify the means. But <laughs> setting that aside, yeah, if it's the case that most people working who are kind of like doing research or doing philosophy within a deontological ethical framework do still care about consequences, they just don't believe that they're the only thing that matters. Well, I suppose if people give significant weight to the consequences issue, if they give significant weight to you know, benefits and harms that are getting done, then it seems like the interest of those moral philosophers in, you know, how can you do as much impartial good as possible should be pretty substantial, unless you think that the constraints on people's actions because of these other, you know, principles of, of a right action are either strong or numerous or onerous in some way in practice. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's broadly correct. I mean, like one area where non-consequentialist moral philosophers or standard non-consequentialist views may come into some degree of conflict with, again, with perhaps this idea of doing as much good as possible, yeah, relates to the sort of utilitarian theory of, I mean, it's, yeah, the utilitarian theory of interpersonal aggregation. Mm. Uh, so roughly, this is the question of how one should sort of add up and weigh and balance harms and benefits to different people in order to work out whom one should help mm. when you can't help everyone. So just focus on cases. Yeah, so set aside this kind of things we were just talking about, right? There's there's no question of like harmfully imposing on someone without their consent. You're not being asked to make some kind of very great sacrifice of your own interests and you don't have any special relationships to anyone. Even in these kind of cases where you're just sort of asking, how should I allocate a benefit between different people? I think many non-consequentialist philosophers are likely to disagree with certain kinds of claims on which we should in these contexts maximize the good, hmm. at least if the good is like total welfare, 
measured as, say, just sort of units of pleasure and pain um, Mm. or something along those lines. Why would they object to that? Because it seems like we've kind of said, well, there's no other issues being raised here, like, you know, close relationships that you have with people or, you know, needing to undo harms that you've done to someone. It's a case where you're considering different ways of benefiting complete strangers. Why in that case would you not just think about the aggregate uh, amount of happiness? Yeah, so one sort of point of contention is how one should weigh very significant burdens that might fall on one person against relatively trivial, or yeah, let's just say trivial benefits that might accrue to other people. So yeah, I mean, an example, which I think we'll might discuss a bit later on in greater depth is, you know, suppose I can save someone from a premature death, but I can otherwise provide arbitrarily many people with some trivial benefit, like they get to lick a tasty lollipop. They each get their own. They don't have to share. On its standard interpretation, utilitarianism entails that if you've got enough people to whom you can grant this very trivial benefit and additional lick of a tasty lollipop, those together can outweigh even something as important as sparing a person from premature death. I see. And whilst you don't, strictly speaking, need to reject consequentialism in order to support the opposite verdict about that sort of case, I think that the opposite verdict, that there are certain sufficiently bad harms such that it's we ought to spare one person from that grave harm rather than providing trivial benefits to arbitrarily many people. I think that's a view that like non-consequentialist philosophers are especially likely to accept. Yeah. Okay, so I suppose there's issues about distribution of harms and benefits that uh, the deontologists might be interested in, where they're concerned about uh, you know, the worst-off member disproportionately or concerned about focusing on particularly severe harms rather than small ones, perhaps, where a consequentialist might be more neutral about those things. Yeah, though, I mean, in principle, there's no contradiction between being a consequentialist and being especially concerned with the worse off, Mm. in that you might have a so-called, yeah, prioritarian theory of good outcomes. I see. So roughly speaking, prioritarianism says that benefits matter more when they're received by people who are worse off in absolute terms. So it departs from utilitarianism, which says that it's equally important to benefit anyone, no matter how well off they are, in saying, yeah, that benefits the worse off matter morally more. But you can cash this out as a theory of which outcomes are good and bad. And so you needn't, in principle, disagree with consequentialism in order to have a view of that kind. Yeah. So a view that you hear from time to time is people who will hear about 80,000 hours or effective altruism, uh, you know, all of this research that's being done, or this thought that's being given to the question of how would one do as much good as possible from an impartial point of view. And they'll say, well, I personally don't endorse consequentialism or utilitarianism. So this is of like little interest to me. Uh, it sounds like you think that is misguided. Can you unpack why? Yeah, I, I agree that's misguided. I mean, Well, it might not be totally misguided in that there may be some misunderstanding or some ways in which certain expressions that are used to like communicate what effective altruism is about might inadvertently build in sort of consequentialist assumptions. So as I said, I mean, if you sort of, yeah, if you talk about the importance of doing as much good as possible without any qualification, it sounds very much like you're just asserting consequentialism. I mean, it's pretty difficult to say exactly what it is that effective altruism is as a kind of position, Uh, Mm. like all social movements, it's pretty hard to pick out some like definitive statements that all and only effective altruists accept. But there's certainly no in principle reason why one couldn't reject consequentialism, but nonetheless believe that we have very strong obligations of beneficence, very strong obligations to help others and promote the welfare of others. 
and that there are certain principles for aggregating harms and benefits across people that bear on this question such that we ought to be especially concerned about helping more people as opposed to fewer. So there is a sign of extreme, what I think of as a kind of extreme non-consequentialist or deontological view, which says, for example, that if you could save the lives of five people or save the lives of one other person, and these lives are otherwise sort of equivalent, these people will live for roughly as long as one another, you know, they have roughly similar kinds of yeah, dependence, people who care about them. There is a kind of view, a sort of fully non-aggregative theory of ethics, which says that even in such cases, it's not true that one ought to save the greater number. Some people, most famously John Tarek, have argued that in such cases, one ought simply to flip a coin, because that gives each person an equal chance of being saved. Hmm. But I think that's kind of a minority view amongst non-consequentialist philosophers and amongst philosophers generally. Most people think that you ought to save the greater number in such cases. Where people might have more qualms is in the kind of cases that I described earlier, where you're not sort of trading off, you know, roughly similar harms to different people, but rather very significant harms to a smaller number of people versus relatively insignificant benefits or harms to a much, much greater number of people. Those are the sorts of questions about aggregation where I think many people are going to get off the boat, so to speak. They're going to be unwilling to follow the principles of utilitarian cost-effectiveness analysis, basically. But I think it's somewhat difficult to come up with real-world practical cases where that sort of choice is one that would sort of overturn concrete recommendations about where one ought to donate, for example. I didn't look into this all that closely, but for example, I don't think amongst the sort of, yeah, organisations that are recommended by GiveWell, for example, there's any point where one might worry that a recommendation of a particular organisation derives from giving weight to very, very small benefits and aggregating those according to the number of people who can be benefited. I think yeah. all of the all of the sort of people who are benefited by the organisations, or at least the primary beneficiaries, are people who are having their lives uh, transformed quite significantly. I see. Yeah. So it sounds like the thread that connects all of these different ideas is beneficence. And so under most deontological theory, so definitely consequentialism, and it sounds like most deontologists in general believe that one either has duties of beneficence or that beneficence is a good thing, even if you're not obligated to do it. And beneficence is helping people in an impartial way, uh, providing benefits to people and, and avoiding harms. Where does beneficence feature? Uh, how prominently does it feature and what form does it take in uh, kind of mainstream deontological thinking? Yeah, so I think... I mean, there are maybe sort of two specific debates where the nature of our obligations of beneficence are are debated. Debates where they're debated. <laughs> uh, so, yes, on the one hand, there's this question of, in some sense, just how strong are these obligations of beneficence? So, you know, I mentioned earlier, like, one standard objection to utilitarianism is that it's too permissive. It allows us to do certain things that intuitively we aren't permitted to do. And another objection is that it's too demanding of us. It, mm. it asks us to do certain things in sacrificing our own interests for the sake of the general good that intuitively we aren't required to do. Nonetheless, it's possible to make a fairly good case without assuming utilitarianism or consequentialism that we have very strong obligations of beneficence. So this is the kind of line of argument or line of discussion which 
at least in the modern era, originates with Peter Singer's article, Famine, Affluence and Morality, and the sort of subsequent debate that leads on from that paper. But roughly speaking, in that paper, Singer argues that relying on moral ideas or moral principles that virtually everyone should be happy to accept, we have very strong obligations to aid people who are in need or whose lives are threatened by the effects of severe poverty, for example. So that suggests that even if we're not you know, always required to sacrifice our own interests just so long as that would do slightly more to benefit somebody else, we may nonetheless have very strong obligations of beneficence, very strong obligations to make significant sacrifices of our own well-being to help people who would otherwise be very badly off and to make their lives better. I know there's a lot of debate about exactly what kind of principles should govern obligations of beneficence, whether Singer is in fact right that obligations of beneficence are quite as strong as he claims they are in that paper. And yeah, there are sort of various discussions about various factors that might explain, for example, why we ought to be willing to make much greater sacrifices to help this famous example of a child who's drowning in a shallow pond right at our feet, as opposed to helping, say, distant strangers or distant children whose lives we might be able to save by donating to cost-effective charities, for example. So there's a lot of debate about that issue and various attempts to explain why there might be a morally relevant difference between these two examples, so saving the child drowning in a shallow pond right at your feet, saving a life through donations in some faraway country, say. Mm. So that's one subject of debate. And then the other, I guess, major subject of debate are these questions about aggregation that I suggested and the ways in which we should balance gains and losses to different people, gains and losses of different sizes, especially when we have to make a decision about whom to help and we can't help everybody. Yeah. So maybe a useful applied case here is your decision to join uh, Giving What We Can. So uh, committing to give 10% of your income to uh, the best charities or charities that would uh, do the best from an impartial, beneficent point of view. Yeah. Can you talk through how you think about that decision uh, within your kind of ethical framework? Yeah. So I joined Giving What We Can, I think, almost, almost immediately after it was started up, I think. And Yeah, I was very convinced by this argument that you find in Family Affluence and Morality and and also in a subsequent book by Peter Unger called Living High and Letting Die. So yeah, I was very much convinced of this conclusion that we have very strong obligations to to help other people and to spare them from these very significant harms that arise from severe poverty. I think I was sort of on board with this idea uh, as soon as it was proposed Perhaps at the time, I wasn't quite as focused on the the issue of sort of, yeah, effectiveness of helping the greatest number of people possible, perhaps in large part because I think it hadn't occurred to me that there might be significant differences in the cost effectiveness of different interventions. But yeah, I mean, as I said, it's very standard for non-consequentialists to think that if you can help different people who might otherwise suffer roughly similar kinds of harms then you ought to help the greater number. So so basically, your philosophy is that it is good to make the world a better place in the way that a consequentialist would think about it, which is, you know, people having flourishing lives and not having awful lives. So long as you're not violating some other principle of of right action. And then when you think about specific things like giving 10% of your income to charity, well, you notice that the benefit to the recipients is much larger than the cost to you. So you've got the beneficence aspect there. And then you might stop and think, 
does this violate some other principle of right action? Like, you know, can I think of thought experiments that are related to this topic that would say that no, even though it's producing desirable outcomes, I'm not permitted to give away this money uh, or, or it wouldn't be desirable or there's like important offsetting factors. And uh, basically, it sounds like you thought about it and you noticed that there were not any, <laughs> not, not any of those. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, obviously, there are some worries about the harms that would be caused by various charitable interventions, and especially harms that might be caused to societies by aid. So those might, in principle, weigh as reasons against, and perhaps as reasons against that would give rise to some kind of constraint on right action. But I think the conversation that sort of circles around these questions of whether we might inadvertently be doing more harm than good in, say, donating or in providing aid... They don't have a distinctively non-consequentialist slant. The question is roughly, yeah, as I said, are we doing more harm than good? uh, Or are we in fact doing more good than harm? Yeah, I think my view is that, say, in particular, these questions about whether there are constraints on ways in which we can permissibly harm other people for the sake of bringing about the greater good, those don't really seem to be practically relevant to this issue. And I suspect not really to any issues that are very much at the forefront of effective altruist debate at the moment. Yeah. So it sounds like very strong reasoning. So it seems whether you come from a purely consequentialist or this kind of mixed deontological beneficence uh, point of view, it seems like the moral or the the ethical case for giving 10% of your income away uh, to whatever method you think will produce the best impartial good, the case is very strong. But my impression is that there's not a ton of interest in that kind of action or like analyzing different approaches for doing the most impartial good from people who approach philosophy from a deontological point of view. That is not a big research interest and possibly not a big interest among uh, people who are just uh, uh, have a deontological frame of mind in their day to day life. Do you have any explanation for yeah why that is the case, given that beneficence is kind of a feature of most of these theories, and it seems like the case that this is a, an example of required beneficence is powerful? Yeah, I'm not sure. On the one hand, I'm not totally sure that there isn't you know interest um, from non-consequentialist philosophers. I mean, I am such a person, right? Sure. <laughs> and I think like if you look at the sort of list of people who joined Giving What We Can early on, I think you find quite a number of moral or political philosophers who I believe reject consequentialism. Uh, so like Adam Smith, uh, no Adam Swift, Adam, Adam, Swift. Smith. <laughs> Adam, Adam Swift. Smith would be a good uh, get Alex, at this stage, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, Alex Vorheva, um at LSC. I think I think they both joined before you did. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess one other thing you might think is something like. Historically, there hasn't really been that much interest amongst consequentialists and utilitarians in figuring out how to really do the very most good. Mm. Uh, very true. I think, yeah, amongst the classical utilitarians, Bentham and Mill, for example, to my knowledge at least, you don't find the kind of sustained inquiry into cause prioritization that characterizes the contemporary effective altruist movement, mm. in spite of the fact that, you know, these were avowed utilitarians or avowed consequentialists. Yeah. So... It may be that, in some sense, this is just a question that it is, for some reason, unusual for moral philosophers or thinkers of many different moral persuasions Mm. to become heavily involved with. And, yeah, there might be no particular question that applies to why non-consequentialists would be especially involved in this question. It might also just be a kind of division of labour type issue. 
if you're a non-consequentialist philosopher, I think you probably think the place where you can add value to the conversation is in picking up on the kind of considerations that consequentialists are apt to miss in their singular focus on promoting the good. And that might therefore create a kind of environment where it tends to be consequentialist moral philosophers who care the most in some sense about promoting the good and that they care about nothing else, who are most likely to focus on these sort of practical questions about cause prioritization. But yeah, I don't really have a good explanation for why this should be so, except for the sort of obvious point that I think you brought up that you know, utilitarianism or consequentialism entails straightforwardly that you should be very concerned about this project. Nonetheless, I believe that there are good arguments for being very interested in these questions, but there is more room to resist this sort of concern for doing the most good as an overriding moral concern or as, as a central moral concern in how one lives one's life. Yeah, it, it is a very good point that so many philosophers who, you know, avowed consequentialism in one form or another, it seems like they took barely a passing interest in the in the question of what actions would actually do the the maximum good, which you'd think would be almost a monomaniacal focus uh, for, for those folks. And that's exactly the kind of way that you would think that they would be inclined to to think and exactly the kind of thing that they would focus on. And so perhaps it's not so surprising that people who are applying different kind of moral frameworks haven't taken a huge interest in, in, in that either, given that it's like somewhat further afield in terms of the, yeah, the, the style of reasoning and the kind of questions that you might ask. So far, I've kind of been alighting this, the difference between something being desirable and something being mandatory. Is it possible to give a, a slight survey of deontologists on the whole? Would they think that taking the Giving What We Can pledge or giving 10% of your income to the best charities is desirable or mandatory or like neither? Well, you know, maybe what fraction might fall into those different camps? I suspect that most, perhaps all, would view this as morally praiseworthy. I mean, as I said, they might have some qualms if the sort of procedure for prioritising among projects that is used violates certain principles that should restrict the way in which we aggregate minor harms against very significant harms, or, for example, considerations of fairness that might guide how we allocate goods amongst competing claimants. But I think it's actually somewhat difficult to identify practically relevant cases where that is sort of an issue in respect of the kind of interventions or organisations that effective altruists recommend, especially in the sort of global health and wellbeing space. I would expect that virtually all would think of this as something that's morally praiseworthy. Whether most would think it's obligatory, I wouldn't be surprised if indeed most people thought it was obligatory to donate 10% of one's income if one is, say, a middle-class person in a developed country to help the worst off, I expect you would probably find quite a lot of people who would regard that as obligatory. Okay. That is cool to know. I guess a different uh, school of thought... <laughs> I, I'm suddenly <laughs> saying that because I'm, uh, it's a little bit surprising that there's not maybe not, not more uptake, but I suppose as you pointed out, like almost no one has taken up this kind of approach. So it's not surprising to find that any, any particular group of people, mostly they haven't taken it up either. A separate research interest that you have is in long-termism. And this is another one of these ideas that seems kind of strictly entailed by utilitarianism, but might well be entailed or might well be entailed with some variations by many other moral philosophies that one might follow. What ethical like reasons cause you to take a big interest in long-termism? This idea that arguably the best actions that we could take would be the ones that would have the best consequences far in the future after our normal lifespans are over. Yeah, so, I mean, as I said, it's characteristic of contemporary non-consequentialist philosophers to think that promoting the good 
is an important source of moral reasons, but not the only one. And if we understand long-termism in the first instance as a claim about value, about what kind of actions best promote the good, this suggests a very sort of natural connection or a reason why one would be interested in this question, right? If you think that reasons to promote the good are an important class of moral reasons, then it's important to know in what way those reasons point or to what kind of actions do they direct us. So from that perspective, it would be very natural to be interested in long-termism if you take seriously that there are stringent obligations of beneficence, even if you deny that that's the whole of morality. Once you get into long-termism, you get into population ethics, and here a whole new sort of set of controversies arise where there's additional scope for disagreement about how sort of outcomes that are associated with creating additional happy lives bear on what we morally ought to do. Whilst I think long-termism can be supported from within a range of different theories of the good, it perhaps has a most natural home within this kind of totalist utilitarianism that says one outcome is better than another, just in case it contains a greater sum total of welfare. And so in particular, on this view, you can make the outcome better by creating additional happy lives. Yeah. And I think many people are intuitively sceptical of the idea that we have moral reason to bring additional happy lives into existence. You can resist this from within consequentialism by adopting a particular theory of the good that, say, rules out total utilitarianism. But it is, again, a sort of an idea where perhaps non-consequentialists are especially apt to deny that there could be a moral obligation to create additional happy lives as opposed to benefiting already existing people or people who will exist regardless of what action we take. I see. So I suppose the, the reason to take an interest in long-termism is kind of, for you, is like very similar to the reason to take an interest in effective altruism, because uh, long-termism is just kind of one particular school of thought that one might have about how one might pursue beneficence, how one might do the most good from an impartial point of view. And I guess you're saying for, for many people who would be on board with many, many deontologists who would be enthusiastic about the idea that it is great to give 10% of your income to help extremely uh, badly off people overseas, one reason they might get off the boat on the trip to long-termism and thinking about people very far in the future is that they may have a different views on population ethics. And population ethics is this whole research area where people compare different scenarios that have different numbers of people in them and different identities of people in them and try to figure out which of these scenarios is better to create. And deontologists, perhaps, for whatever reason, are somewhat more inclined to resist the idea that a scenario can be much better just because it has way more people in it, people who don't exist right now. That's a potential parting of ways. Yeah, I think so. I mean, as I said, I think many people are sort of find this idea intuitively bizarre, <laughs> let's say. And that includes many consequentialists or many utilitarians or people who identify as such. So it's certainly not particular to non-consequentialism to think that, you know, as Jan Narvison put it, uh, you know, we should be in favour of making people happy, but neutral about making happy people. As I recall, Narvison sets up this claim in a paper in which he's otherwise developing a utilitarian approach to thinking about population. So one can be sceptical of the value of adding happy lives whilst otherwise endorsing a utilitarian or consequentialist approach to ethics. But yeah, I think there's a sense in which consequentialism perhaps lends itself especially easily to a view on which there can be yeah, on which we could be sort of obligated to create additional happy lives in that it sort of gives us 
It says ultimately that what matters morally is to promote the good. And so if we identify the good with welfare, for example, one can very naturally fall into thinking that we should be in favour of having as much welfare as possible, even if that would not be increasing the welfare of any existing person or any person who might exist, regardless of which action we take. Whereas non-consequentialists are more likely to take this line of thought, which is developed especially well, I think, in some recent papers by Johann Frick, that yeah, morality is sort of ultimately rooted in concern for people. And so our overriding concern should be to ensure that if a person comes into existence, then their life goes well for them. And welfare is not otherwise a source of moral demands, right? Its moral significance can't be detached from our concern for individuals. Consequentialism, I think, has sometimes, you know, yeah, especially in this totalist utilitarian form, opened itself up to, or seemed to open itself up to an objection that it sort of treats people as if they were vessels or receptacle for something valuable. And yeah, that concern, I think, is especially likely to arise when we contemplate this idea that we should be in the business of creating more people so that there can be more welfare in total. It seems as if we're sort of valuing people as means to the production of utility. Again, as I said, there are ways of amending or otherwise devising one's theory of the good such that one might avoid the implication that it improves the outcome to add people who have good lives. But yeah, again, this is a case where non-consequentialists are perhaps more likely to get off the boat than consequentialists for perhaps roughly the kind of reasons I've tried to set out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm keen to pull more on uh, what are the potential differences in views that, that people would have. So, so this population ethics case is one. Another that you've mentioned a few times is this issue that deontologists might have a different view on, you know, very big harms versus very small harms and how you weigh those up against one another. Yeah, what are some other ways in which uh, someone with kind of your moral perspective might have a different idea about how one ought to go about doing the most good, uh, how they might have different priorities from an effective altruist uh, point of view than someone who was more just a straight utilitarian? Yeah, I mean, one other example of these sorts of questions about sort of allocative or distributive ethics, um, where again, there might be a tendency for consequentialists and non-consequentialists to disagree. I mean, this might relate sort of to this kind of issue of fairness. So you can imagine cases where you could provide, let's say, like a roughly similar benefit to one of two people, but a slightly greater benefit to one of them. In these cases, utilitarians, perhaps consequentialists generally, will think that one ought to help the person that one can benefit the most. But I think many non-consequentialists are apt to be sceptical of this, at least in cases where the difference in the benefit that one can provide isn't especially great. So, for example, suppose that we can choose between saving the lives of two people. One of these people will have some post-operative pain and the other won't. Otherwise, their lives will be similar from then on. I think it's perhaps somewhat natural to think that it's it's unfair to the person who would have some post-operative pain, that they should entirely lose any claim to our help just because they won't be benefited quite as much as the other person. You might think it's fairer still in this case to say flip a coin to decide between the two. Okay, so you've got issues around distribution of benefits to people. Um... I mean, you might think this is actually roughly the same kind of issue as the one we were discussing earlier about how to weigh very significant benefits against mm relatively trivial benefits, in that you might think, although here we're not sort of dealing with different, you know, very large numbers of people, in some sense, we're asking how the provision of a comparatively minor benefit 
should determine how we decide who is spared from a very significant harm, in this case, say, losing their life. So you might think these are actually sort of reflective of the same underlying issue, but nonetheless, it doesn't involve these questions about very, very large numbers. Here, we just have one person and one other person who can be benefited slightly more. Are there any other ways that, yeah, deontologists might think about these things differently? Yeah, so one other issue, so this relates to a paper I published recently. So this relates to the issue of discounting. So there's a kind of standard practice within the economic evaluation of long-term investments, which involves discounting future welfare. And most people, when they reflect on this, think that this can't morally be justified. It may be that people, in fact, discount their own future welfare because they're impatient. But having less moral concern for people merely because they're more distant in time seems indefensible. I think that's very much a position that many philosophers and economists, insofar as they've thought about this from a normative perspective, that's the kind of position to which they've tended to gravitate. So one issue that I was interested in exploring was whether one could justify something that at least looks like a discount rate by appeal to the moral importance of partiality. So consequentialists typically adopt the view that, yeah, as I said, you should maximise the good. And the good here is the good considered impartially. It's not what's good or bad from my perspective or from your perspective, but what's good as considered from, you know, sometimes it's put as the point of view of the universe. Most people, I think, have a pre-theoretic belief at the very least that we ought to be especially concerned about the welfare of some people and not others. We ought not to be completely impartial between the welfare of all the different people who exist. So, for example, I ought to be an ab indeed more concerned about the welfare of my wife than about your welfare, Rob. Yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's all right. So we think that there are these reasons to be especially concerned with the welfare of some people and not others that relate to the particular relationships in which we stand to some people and not to others. And this, I think, is, is thought of as a distinctively non-consequentialist kind of moral considerations of partiality. And then the idea to be explored is that we might claim that we stand in relations to our nearer descendants that give us reasons to care more about their welfare than our more distant descendants. An idea that's been floated at a couple of points in the literature on discounting, it's discussed by Derek Parfit in his 1984 book, Reasons and Persons. A number of economists have mentioned it. Uh, Thomas Schelling, I believe, mentions this as an idea. Nick Stern characterises this as something like the best ethical argument for a positive discount rate. But there's been surprisingly little sustained philosophical inquiry into whether one can indeed justify something like a positive discount rate on future well-being in something like this way. In the paper, I sort of roughly argue that you can indeed justify something that looks somewhat like a positive rate of pure intergenerational time preference in this way. But nonetheless, you probably can't justify the very extreme conclusions about discounting that you can derive from the sort of ordinary way in which economists approach discounting, where they apply a kind of constant exponential discount rate uh, to future well-being, such that if you go sufficiently far forward into the future, then people's welfare essentially counts for nothing. Yeah. Okay, so that yeah, the idea here is that 
you might have a deontological theory that says, yes, you know, neutral beneficence is good or impartial beneficence is good. But we also have other moral reasons, which are partial reasons to benefit people. So we have particular reasons to help our friends and family and people who are, who are close to us. And you point out in this paper that this can potentially give us something like an increasing indifference to the future as it carries on because our connection to people as time passes becomes weaker and weaker. And so our partial reasons to help our great-great-grandchildren might be uh, less than those to help our grandchildren. And so we gradually (laughs) just care less about how the future is going, basically. Yes, that's the idea, exactly. Yeah. Um, Cool. Yeah, we'll we'll stick up a link to that paper. I guess pushing on this idea of competing moral obligations... I suppose if I try to imagine deontologist who thinks that it's, say, possibly even bad or, or not desirable to take the given what we can pledge, my guess is that they would say something like you have other moral priorities that should be taking up your money and your resources and your attention and so on that, that are not about this neutral beneficence to help strangers. Like maybe you should be trying to push for justice in your society or you should be like spending all of that money on your kid because your partial reasons to help your own child are so strong that uh, they have a claim on almost all of your resources and uh, giving it to a stranger is the wrong idea. What moral motivations or yeah, reasons for action might a deontologist think are competitive with the ability to really cheaply provide a huge benefit to a stranger? Yeah, I mean, I think the point you raised about obligations to our child, I think people would be unlikely to take this view, at least if we're yeah, assuming that people are already quite affluent. Mm. Um, I think the other kind of view that you mentioned, that there may be requirements of justice on us to be especially concerned about ameliorating injustices in which we are personally implicated or otherwise involved. I think that's probably a more common line of resistance. So yeah, to the idea that, yeah, one should allocate one's beneficence in a a sort of purely impartial way or in a way that completely disregards the particular relationships in which one is embedded. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And I guess another uh, kind of thread that I've heard is that possibly one has obligations to like undo past injustices that might be so important that they're kind of competitive with the need to help strangers or the desirability to help strangers. Have you heard of any like specific cases of that that people bring up? Yeah, I similarly can't think of any specific instances of people sort of raising this objection in any publications. That, but I think, yeah, it's certainly an idea that's sort of come up in in discussion. I mean, sort of very similar to the sort of the other idea that you mentioned, that we as, say, beneficiaries of past injustices may have especially strong obligations to rectify those injustices, to compensate, for example, the contemporary victims of those injustices or the descendants of uh, historical injustices. Yeah, so that's, I think, definitely a very significant consideration to take into mind. And I think it then becomes very difficult to say exactly how one should weigh these Hmm. competing considerations in respect of the value of justice and the value of rectifying past injustices against the potentially significantly greater benefits that we can provide for people who, yeah, I mean, for example, for people who who, uh, suffer from the adverse effects of extreme poverty. Though this may be less of an issue if the question is a choice between focusing on, let's say, the rectification of historical or contemporary injustices that obtain within one's own country or within one's own society and helping some of the poorest people in the world, in that you might think that we are also the beneficiaries of a kind of international economic system 
that unjustly has impoverished some of the poorest people in the world. And so these sort of considerations that relate to rectifying past or contemporary injustices may not tell one way or the other so decisively if the choice is between rectifying injustices within our own society versus helping individuals who are badly off in other countries, in developing countries, say, if we live in a developed country, in that we might think the sort of yeah network of injustices of which we've benefited spans the globe. And so these considerations of rectifying injustices in which we may be complicit or otherwise benefit from may also be thought to apply to helping people in severe poverty. It might become more of a significant challenge if we think about issues that are concerned with promoting a good long-term future where there might be less consideration, perhaps. It might be less straightforward to frame the kind of activities in which one would be engaged in this way. Though I think Toby Ord in The Precipice does sort of take up this issue and sort of connect long-termist concerns to the rectification of past injustice. The thought being in a very straightforward sense that if we all die in some extinction catastrophe, then we'll never be in a position to right past wrongs. Mm. I suppose one might also think that if a particular group of people through their own negligence end up killing everyone, that that is incredibly unjust as well as being harmful. And so it's important to prevent that injustice. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Bringing all of this together a little bit, it seems like your perspective on cause priorities might actually be different from the mainstream within effective altruism barely almost at all because even other folks who are like you know not active researchers in deontological ethical theories even those like me who in general are like most enthusiastic and most excited to talk about consequentialist uh, ideas uh, we almost all think that in practice there are side constraints on your actions you know constraints like you can't steal money from other people and then give it to charity and there's various different reasons for that uh, one is like moral uncertainty that those things might just be prohibited we might have really strong non-consequentialist reasons not to do them or alternatively that even if you can't identify the enormous harm that will be caused by that right now uh, in practice we think that most of these rules are very sound and allow people to get along well and it would be a disaster if you started just violating all of these social norms because your particular calculation suggests that it's good is there actually anywhere almost in practice where the actions that you would think would be most good from an effective altruist point of view would be different than the mainstream within, you know, the sort of things that you might find uh, people talking about on the effective altruist forum because of your particular take on ethics? Yes, I think, I mean, probably I'm more sceptical of long-termism than others, or at least I'm more sceptical of the sort of position that we might call deontic long-termism. So, Deontic here is a bit of like moral philosophy jargon, which roughly means to do with what one is obligated or permitted to do. And so we can distinguish this sort of claim often called axiological strong long-termism. Axiology is another part of moral philosophy jargon, which means having to do with the theory of the good. So axiological strong long-termism is very roughly the claim that those acts that best promote the good do so by virtue of their potential effects on the long-run future. And then deontic strong long-termism would be the claim that those acts that are right are by and large right by virtue of the fact that they would have significantly or potentially have significantly beneficial effects concerning the the long-run development of Earth-originating intelligent life or something along those lines. And there's a kind of obvious sense in which I think deontologists have more room to resist 
deontic long-termism than consequentialists, in that deontic long-termism follows quite straightforwardly from axiological long-termism, if you believe consequentialism. So you're saying that the connection between like what is good and then what you ought to do in consequentialism is kind of a one-to-one correspondence that if it produces a better outcome, then you ought to do it. And so axiological and deontic is not a very important distinction within consequentialism. But within deontology, these things come apart much more. So yeah, go on. Yeah. And so as I mentioned earlier, in particular, you might be sort of skeptical that we can have reasons to yeah, bring into existence people who or we can have yeah, moral obligations to bring into existence individuals who have lives worth living just for the sake of there being more welfare in the world. And that's a view to which I'm quite attracted, that there are no such obligations. I'm similarly also attracted to the significantly less intuitive claim that if we can sort of choose which of two individuals to bring into existence and both will have lives worth living, then I'm also sceptical of the claim that we are obligated to bring into existence the person who would have the better life. I think that's a claim that many non-consequentialists think is, is wrong. We are obligated to bring into existence the person who would have the better life. So, for example, if we can choose between bringing into existence someone who will live a good life that would be, say, a full human life, they would live to, say, 80 years, or we could choose to bring into existence someone who would live a a life that is very short for a human being, so perhaps they'll be born with some congenital condition such that they die at the age of 30. Many people, I think, intuitively feel that we morally ought to choose to bring into existence the person who would have the better life. And whilst I agree it would be better, so to choose, I'm inclined towards the view that it would not be wrong to choose to bring into existence the person who would have the shorter, less good life instead. This is a, is a lot more controversial, at least, yeah, certainly amongst, yeah, amongst all philosophers, I suspect. Mm. Um, That's a controversial issue or a much debated topic. Okay. Yes, exactly. So this is the sort of, I mean, this is related to the sort of classic non-identity problem popularized by Derek Parfit in his 1984 book, Reasons and Persons. Uh, in some sense, the non-identity problem refers to the, the theoretical paradox that arises in these cases where our actions change the identity of the person we might bring into existence in a way that seems to imply that no one is made better or worse off, or certainly that nobody's made worse off as a result of our choosing an action that seems to bring about a worse outcome. For example, bringing into existence the person who would live for only 30 years as opposed to the person who would live for 80 years. The sort of paradox is that a lot of people think it is morally better to bring into existence the person who would live for 80 years and we ought to do this rather than bring into existence the person who will die prematurely. But bringing into existence the person who will die prematurely instead is not worse for anyone. It's not worse for that person. They get to live 30 happy years. It's not worse for the person who could have been brought into existence and would have died at 80 since there is no such person because we chose not to create them. And we can stipulate that it's not worse for us. So this is a sort of a well-known paradox in practical ethics. And there are different ways of reacting to this paradox. And I'm perhaps unusually sympathetic to the view, which I think is best defended by David Boonin in his recent book on the non-identity problem, on which, while it is better to bring into existence the person who would live to 80 years rather than the person who would die prematurely, it isn't obligatory to bring such a life into existence. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll stick up a link to that paper. And I've read a lot of your papers in prepping for this. And I know that you talk about this issue in one of them. So I'll figure out which one of them it is and, and we'll link to that and note that in the blog post associated with the episode. 
I'm keen to dig a little bit more on trying to find deontological ideas that are in tension with effective altruism or kind of impartial beneficence. Mm-hmm. I suppose it seems like some moral philosophers have had a degree of hostility kind of to the mentality maybe that many effective altruists would have. And possibly even this hostility could extend all the way to feeling odd about someone taking a pledge to give 10% of their income to the best charities, even if they're quite comfortable. Although maybe they'll feel that that's okay because it's not such an extreme action. But like some of it seems to come from this sense that one ought not to treat oneself as a means to an end or that there's something good about being authentic, I guess, or pursuing one's own interests and not just trying to help others. I suppose, I mean, a famous uh, deontological thinker who reasoned this way was Ayn Rand. She like almost actively thought that charity was bad, unless one was most passionate about it. She almost like advocated an aesthetic of selfishness or certainly self-focusedness. But I guess there's also Bernard Williams, who has kind of run this line that there's something wrong with the disposition of just thinking about your life as a way to aid others. Yeah, could you uh, flesh that out a little bit? Because I I imagine you know a ton more about this issue than I do. Yes, you're right. So yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to conceptualize this naturally as a claim that it's morally wrong, for example, to engage in impartial beneficence. But yes, there might be a sort of a belief that in a sort of wider sense when we think about how we ought to live. Morality is one consideration that determines how we ought to live, but there are other considerations that might be thought not to be specifically moral considerations that bear on how we ought to live our lives and what sort of careers we ought to choose, and perhaps even where we ought to choose to donate. So for example, you mentioned authenticity. So you might think a lot of people believe that people in some sense ought to be authentic, I think it's less clear that they believe one morally ought to be authentic. But one is, yeah, nonetheless, in some sense, criticisable, one might think, if one isn't authentic, if one doesn't live in accordance with one's deepest principles, aims and ambitions, beliefs, and so on and so forth. And yes, you might well believe, and yeah, I think in a rough sense, this is what Bernard Williams believed, that utilitarianism, by virtue of asking a person to be willing to subordinate their own interests to achieving any marginally greater benefit for others, asks a person to give up their, usually it's Williams puts it in terms of losing their integrity. But I think it's very natural to understand what Williams means by integrity is very closely connected with an ideal of personal authenticity. And more generally, I think, yes, I mean, there's, a, there's also a, a very famous paper by Susan Wolfe called Moral Saints, where Wolfe argues very roughly that a life that is overwhelmingly governed by concern to do what is morally best, or even overwhelmingly governed by concern to do what is morally right, is not a very attractive kind of life. I think she says something along the lines of, it's not the kind of person that we want our children to turn out to be. And there are certain sort of distinctive goods that might be lost if we were sort of, in some sense, yeah, overly moral, overly scrupulous, overly concerned or exclusively concerned with doing whatever was morally best in any given situation. One of the examples she gives is something like, no one could have a sort of wry or cynical sense of humour if we were always trying to be as morally good as possible. We would be these kind of... Yeah, very dour. Of, yeah, very Protestant. Yeah, sort of meek, <laughs> insipid characters or something along those lines. I see, yeah. So yes, I definitely think one could have concerns about that. But I think they're somewhat difficult to bring to bear, except on, yeah, I mean, something like a full-blown utilitarianism, which says one always 
to bring about the outcome that is best considered impartially. If we're just talking about, you know, the idea that one should donate 10% of one's income, if one is already quite well off living in a developed country, middle class, etc. I think it's very hard to make the case, unless one is in quite unusual circumstances, that this would violate one's integrity or authenticity to such an extent that one ought not to do this. Perhaps there can be some resistance to the idea that one should be guided by impartial concern in choosing where to give. Perhaps that might be a more a place where these concerns about authenticity could become more significant or offer a sharper line of resistance to standard effective altruist claims. The thought being that if one just donates to wherever GiveWell recommends that one donates, then one loses something of the kind of authenticity that can be achieved by giving to a cause that is personally meaningful in a way that, say, perhaps GiveWell's top recommended charities are not personally meaningful to someone. So I think that definitely could be a consideration that would lead one to resist certain kinds of effective altruist conclusions. It's not something that weighs especially heavily with me. I think I'm on record now as very sceptical about the existence of the legitimacy of authenticity as a personal ideal. I have a paper in the European Journal of Philosophy arguing roughly that there is no such thing as the deep or central self such that one ought to express the traits that belong to that deep or central self in one's actions and in the way one lives one's life. So I'm quite sceptical of that. But yes, I mean, certainly the ideal of authenticity is, is in some sense, yeah, a very widely adopted, very widely accepted personal ideal that many people, I think, treat as an important part of the answer to this very general sort of ethical question of how one ought to live, which you might think is not decided or shouldn't be decided entirely by concern for what would be morally best or what one morally ought to do. Okay, pushing on from deontology, in terms of thinking about other schools of thought within ethics and what they would make of effective altruism, the other, well, the third big school of thought within ethics is virtue ethics, which I guess approaches ethics from the perspective of cultivating personal characteristics that are considered desirable, like kindness or honesty or so on, or at least that, that, that's how I would very briefly describe it. I don't want to spend too, too long on this one because this isn't your area so much, but do you have any idea what virtue ethicists would think of effective altruism as a community and an activity? I can try some guesses. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to distinguish different varieties of virtue ethics. So as you suggested, I think the sort of the thing that perhaps unites all virtue ethicists at the broadest or most abstract level is some kind of belief that the most important questions in moral inquiry or in ethical inquiry relate to the nature and development of the virtues. And then you can sort of take this sort of thought in different directions. So some people within the virtue ethical school believe that this kind of line of inquiry or this way of thinking provides us with the materials for a distinctively virtue ethical criterion of right action. In that you could sort of believe the first thing and nonetheless believe utilitarianism, for example. You might think if we really want to achieve good outcomes, the thing that we should really focus on is cultivating the right character traits in people. So in that sense, one could have a kind of a virtue theoretic um, or a virtue focused consequentialism. You might think that the things we should really be focusing on if we want to make the world a better place is developing the right character traits in people as opposed to developing the right sort of algorithmic decision procedures or 
developing the right social institutions. But yes, you could also believe in a distinctively virtue ethical criterion of right action. Perhaps the best known example of this is due to Rosalind Hurst House. And it says that an act is right if and only if and because it is what a virtuous person would characteristically do. That isn't especially informative unless you can provide a self-standing theory of what the virtues are. Yeah, <laughs> it raises that question. Yeah, <laughs> so this, this then provides, you know, a sort of another point where, where we go sort of deeper and look at sort of deeper varieties of virtue ethics. Perhaps the most prominent theory of the virtues amongst contemporary virtue ethicists is still a kind of neo-Aristotelian account of the virtues where roughly we understand the virtues as those character traits that are necessary in order to lead a flourishing human life. And unfortunately, since I'm to some extent uncertain about what character traits are necessary in order to lead uh, a flourishing, (laughs) uh, characteristically human life, I'm somewhat unsure how this school of thinking about right action would bear on the sort of questions that we're addressing. Mm, It's just unclear, I suppose. Yes, I mean, at least it's unclear to me. Okay. <laughs> certainly, yeah. I mean, for example, there's, there's certainly been sort of work within virtue ethics or from a virtue ethical perspective on, say, environmental ethics, which has a sort of, sort of natural relationship perhaps to questions about long-termism. But yeah, unfortunately, it's not something I know too much about. I did once toy with the idea of making some kind of argument that effective altruism is best conceived of as a form of virtue ethics. Huh. In that, as I said earlier... I think it's very hard to pick out some kind of claim about what makes an act right or wrong that would be agreed upon by all people who are part of the effective altruist movement. And similarly, it might be very hard to pick out a theory of the good that all members of this community would agree on. I had a sort of hunch that you might find more agreement about what character traits are good. What kind of yeah, what kind of mental dispositions at the very least? So you might think a mental disposition doesn't suffice to yield a character trait, but it's sort of moving in this direction of thinking about what kind of traits of a person should we wish to cultivate. You know, so for example, this kind of idea of cultivating a sort of a scout mindset. Mm, yeah, intellectual integrity and curiosity and kindness and yeah, concern for the well-being of strangers and yeah. Yeah, so I think I had this sort of hunch that maybe it was easier to find common ground amongst effective altruists in terms of what kind of yeah, broad dispositions or broad traits it's desirable for a person to have than about these sort of more fine-grained questions about right action, or good outcomes, over which I think there is indeed a lot of, of disagreement. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if this really works out. <laughs> I like the title more because it was it's very provocative and sounds very counterintuitive and I think then once you spell out the argument, it's perhaps not so counterintuitive. But yes, I mean, that would be, again, a sort of virtue ethical only in the very broad sense of thinking that questions about what kind of character traits we ought to recognise as virtues and develop in ourselves and in others and in our children, insofar as those are prioritised as sort of central ethical questions. Uh, This wouldn't be presupposing any distinctively virtue ethical criteria of right action. Okay, yeah, uh, you mentioned before we started recording that you were slightly nervous about this section because some of your colleagues within philosophy, well, you identify as a deontologist, but some of them uh, question whether you truly deeply are, at least on their conception. Why is that? Uh, Why would they not think of you as a a fellow traveller? I mean, I suspect largely because, you know, very roughly my view is that promoting the good matters a lot. And there are many other sources of moral reasons that can, in principle, bind us and constrain us and direct us to perform various actions. But as I think we discussed, 
certainly those sort of constraints on yeah, sort of harming or killing others in ways that might promote the overall good, those are not really practically significant in my life, I think. And for this reason, I think perhaps a, a large part of the answer for how we ought to live can be derived by thinking about what we can do to promote the good. And so in that sense, you might think I'm very much being drawn in the direction of, of a kind of consequentialist moral view. As you sort of mentioned, the, the practical conclusions to which I'm attracted, the sort of concrete conclusions about how we in practice ought to live our life will tend often to coincide with with those that are favoured by consequentialists. And as you also mentioned, I think there's also a sort of consequentialists often have various yeah, theories that can be proposed about why in practice the dictates of consequentialism coincide significantly with those of common sense morality. So you might think, you know, I might believe that even in principle, one shouldn't kill one person in order to save the lives of five others. And you might think that in the sort of thought experiment set up in the transplant case, where I stipulate that there are no other adverse consequences from my choice. You might think in that case, yes, I ought to kill the one and save the five. But you probably think that any sort of real world case that might resemble this is actually one in which there would be significant indirect adverse consequences such that one ought to do the thing that I would claim is what one ought in principle to do. So there is certainly a kind of a school of thought within moral philosophy that sees these different moral theories as, at least in the kind of circumstances in which we find ourselves now, sees them as to a large extent converging on the sort of practical conclusions that we ought to draw. You know, there are some non-consequentialists, I should mention, who are sceptical of the very idea of promoting the good as a source of, of moral reasons. Uh, so they would sort of deny that that something would promote the good, at least in the distinctive specialised sense that they would sort of think of consequentialists as invoking, they would deny that that is, in fact, a morally significant consideration. Or, yeah, a sort of very closely related view, perhaps a sort of ultimately the same view is one which sort of denies that the good is a kind of independent foundational source of moral reasons that stands apart from and can, in principle, counterbalance other sources of moral reasons that might derived from, say, respect for the rights of others or a desire to be able to justify one's actions in terms that no reasonable person could reject. So I think I'm, I'm more inclined to believe this view on which the good may be conceived as a self-standing source of moral reasons. And again, this might be a sense in which I am a half-hearted non-consequentialist. So that, yeah, I mean, certainly there are flavours of deontology that are much more hostile to the kind of moral considerations that primarily animate consequentialists than the view I accept. And so it's perhaps not surprising that I sort of placed closer to the consequentialist camp than many other philosophers who otherwise reject consequentialism would place themselves. Okay, yeah, to just, I guess, sum up my take on this whole section, it seems to me like effective altruism as a practice and as a community and as a culture to some extent, it's already absorbed and adjusted to many of the critiques that deontologists might make. So almost from the outset, people were trying to be very clear that effective altruism is not utilitarianism in two ways. One is that we do take very seriously ethical side constraints, like saying, well, you know, even if you think it will have good consequences, you shouldn't go out lying and stealing and cheating people and so on. That is like really built very deeply into the culture. And then also around demandingness, you know, people have a wide range of views on this, but effective altruism in practice relative to utilitarianism is much more inclined to say something like, well, it's good to be doing more good and it is reasonable maybe to ask yourself to make some sacrifices to do that, but we don't in practice want to ask people to make massive 
massive sacrifices for very long uh, or in general or, or if they don't think they're, they're really up to it or they're excited about doing it. And 80,000 hours, you know, <laughs> on both points, you know, we have a page where we talk about ethical side constraints and we also encourage people not to make huge uh, sacrifices when we're deciding what career to take, both for pragmatic reasons and because we think it like might not be ethically required and so on. Uh, so at least like those points have kind of already been absorbed and, and taken seriously. But then an area where perhaps they do come apart is that many people in coming from a deontological point of view might think that a really pressing ethical priorities are to prevent injustices that are occurring in the world. It might be cases where you know, injustices are going on and they place extra weight on how bad they are above and beyond the negative consequences. So of course, consequences are going to hate modern slavery because of its negative consequences. But a deontologist might hate it both because of that and above and beyond that because it's an injustice committed against a person. And so that kind of cause area might show up more highly in their prioritization than it would for a typical person in the effective altruism community. And then I guess, of course, there's the population ethics issues, which you know are controversial for many different people from many different schools of thought. But yeah, maybe that's, that's my summary of the main area where I see these ideas uh, going partially in separate directions. Does that seem kind of right? Yes, I think so. I mean, with respect to the issue of justice, I think you're more likely to find the subject of disagreement being something like in relation to injustices in which we especially are complicit or otherwise involved or beneficiaries of said injustices. In that, I mean, in principle, consequentialists can believe that injustice is in and of itself something that makes an outcome worse overall. And the sort of considerations about injustices in which we in particular are implicated is more likely to bring out a disagreement between consequentialists and non-consequentialists in that, as I said, consequentialists roughly favour a completely impartial conception of morality, whereas non-consequentialists are more likely to recognise obligations that I incur in virtue of the particular relationships in which I stand to some people and not to others. And one such particular relationship in which I might stand to some people and not to others is that I am the beneficiary of an injustice that they have suffered or their ancestors have suffered and from which they continue to suffer today. I think it's also worth highlighting this issue about aggregation that I mentioned. So I think the kind of cost-effectiveness analysis that effective altruist organisations tend to use, I think, is probably of a kind that non-consequentialists might disagree with as a matter of principle insofar as it doesn't build in, say, any kind of explicit unwillingness to weigh, say, many, many small benefits against the prevention of a single serious harm. Though, as I mentioned, I think in practice, it's much, much harder to point to any kind of practical decisions about prioritisation where these disagreements about how to aggregate benefits and harms across different individuals are really a live issue. Um, so yeah, I mean, certainly we could imagine that such issues will will or could arise. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of this issue of aggregation, another thing that I was I really keen to talk about is this paper you have on uh, large number skepticism. Yeah, basically, you have this great paper arguing that we shouldn't necessarily be skeptical about thought experiments that involve huge numbers of things that are very hard to comprehend. And that's a position you call after, I guess, other authors who've advocated for this uh, large number skepticism. And large number skepticism is something that many people have advocated over the years, including me, I imagine, on this show a couple of times. Um, first, to help get people to care about this issue at all, can you lay out the electrocution at the World Cup final thought experiment? Yeah, so this is a thought experiment that originally derives from the book What We Owe to Each Other by T.M. Scanlon. So he asked us to imagine that there's 
a World Cup game in progress, and we are at a television station that's broadcasting this game. And then we discover that there's been an accident. Uh, a man called Jones, I believe in the original description, has, has fallen. There's some equipment that's collapsed on top of him. His arm is crushed, and he's currently receiving extremely painful electrical shocks. And we can, of course, alleviate his pain. We can rescue him from under this equipment that's fallen on top of him. But unfortunately, the only way to do so it will require us to shut off the broadcast. And so we'll have to deprive a large number of people who are watching the match of the pleasure of the enjoyment of, of watching this football match. So the question is, ought we to rescue Jones or ought we allow the broadcast to go on? And I think many people have the intuition that we ought to rescue Jones, no matter how many people are watching this broadcast. So again, this is a thought that no number of such, by comparison, relatively insignificant benefits should be allowed to outweigh this single terrible harm that otherwise befalls this poor man who's been trapped under this equipment in our television station. So I suppose that if there's a small number of viewers, then we won't feel very much tension about this, so we won't find it necessarily to be a difficult question at all. But the reason we chose the World Cup final is that potentially you can say this has happened at the central broadcasting place at the stadium, and there might be 500 million people watching the game. Or, you know, I, I guess they claim that a billion people watch the World Cup final. I think that includes delayed transmission. So maybe only the 500 million watching live would actually be affected if they cut it off. But yeah, there's a whole lot of different thought experiments that kind of have this flavor where you've got a bunch of modest benefits to a very large number of people, and then a very large cost to a single identifiable individual. And then people have this intuition that there's just no number of people who can get the smaller benefit that is sufficient to offset the other case. I suppose these are sort of variations on the repugnant conclusion, uh, the case where you say, if you compare two worlds, one where you have a small number of people all having like fantastically interesting and flourishing lives versus extremely large numbers of people who have uh, you know lives that are just barely worth living. I guess, uh, what's the modern uh, example that people use? I guess there's Potatoes and Muzak is, is one summary of these lives that are barely worth living. Another one is like lizards uh, just sunning themselves on a rock <laughs> as an alternative. I guess, I don't know, I don't know how much uh, lizards enjoy uh, sunning themselves on a rock, but we'll assume it's, it's not very much. Uh, <laughs> can you give us a taste of the case in favor of, yeah, large number skepticism in these cases? Yeah, so the basic argument is that we shouldn't trust our intuitive reactions to these cases because they involve very, very, very large numbers, as you mentioned, and goes the claim we are intuitively poorly equipped to grasp very large numbers. Yeah, that's that's the sort of basic claim. <laughs> okay, yeah, in a nutshell, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess critics might say that these cases have been almost contrived in an interesting way in order to take advantage of this fact that we can't picture the vast numbers of lizards setting themselves on rocks or the or we can't picture all simultaneously all of the people watching the World Cup final and so we can't grasp the amount of good that is at stake uh, in those cases whereas it's so easy to picture the person being electrocuted uh, right in front of you and to fully grasp the gravity of that and so they would say no we need to come up with different thought experiments that don't involve such large numbers and things that are so hard to comprehend. Yeah, that's definitely, I think, one way of putting it. I mean, yeah, there are many different arguments that have sort of been put forward for highlighting ways in which we are supposed to be especially bad at grasping very, very large numbers. So, for example, perhaps one of the most famous instances of somebody arguing for large number scepticism in the literature is John Broom. And to illustrate the difficulty that we face in grasping very, very large numbers, Broom sort of highlights people's intuitive resistance to 
the theory of evolution by natural selection. So his sort of thought is that people find it intuitively impossible that, you know, the process of natural selection, however many years it goes on for, should be able to take us from bacteria to, yeah, self-replicating RNA to start even earlier back, to something like us that's blessed with consciousness and intelligence and rationality. And his claim is that this reflects our inability to understand just how much time is involved, just how much time is available for mutation and selection to do its job and take us from something that seems relatively simple to something as complex as a human being. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah, do you want to explain why you don't buy this? Yeah. So the reason I'm skeptical of this is, on the one hand, I don't believe, I don't recall that Broom cites any additional evidence to suggest that this is indeed the explanation for people's resistance. It might seem to be a a plausible explanation for why people would be resistant to the theory of natural selection. But I think one reason to suppose that it in, in fact is not a plausible explanation of people's resistance to the theory of natural selection is that questions about the age of the Earth have actually played quite a significant role in controversies relating to the theory of evolution uh, or in attacks on the theory of evolution. So there's a sort of well-known controversy that arose in the 19th century when Lord Kelvin produced estimates of the age of the Earth, which seemed to suggest that the Earth was not old enough for Darwin's theory to work. And I think many creationists actually treat the age of the Earth as a pivotal issue in their attacks on the scientific consensus. The specific age that our planet has and the specific time that has in fact been available for natural selection to do its work is a sort of a subject of controversy. Well, it's certainly something that people pick up on insofar as they're sceptical of the theory of natural selection. And that's to some extent surprising if you know people were supposed to be guided by the intuition that any amount of time would be insufficient for natural selection to yield creatures with intelligence and consciousness, right? So it wouldn't matter if the Earth was you know, 10,000 years old, a million years old, or 4.5 billion years old. There would be no point in disputing this issue if one thought it was just in principle impossible. Yeah. So to give a little bit more context, I suppose we wouldn't be surprised if people said that in order to justify allowing someone to be electrocuted, you needed to have a very large number of people watching the World Cup final. But perhaps what is a little bit more mysterious is people's moral intuition that there's no number, no imaginable number of people who could be watching it that would be sufficient to justify uh, allowing the person to be electrocuted. And basically, it seems like over the decades, people have had the intuition that folks are not going to be very good at thinking about this case, that uh, that something might, must be going wrong when people picture this in their minds. And that's helping to explain why they have this reaction. And they've made seemingly some quite sloppy arguments <laughs> in favour of uh, wanting to dismiss this. And basically, you go through them one by one and and pull them apart. I suppose, judging by your facial expression, maybe you're more sympathetic to them. But I guess like they range from like not quite right to reasonably sloppy. Uh, let, let's, let's go through <laughs> yeah. a couple of them. So, so, so that was one about evolution there. Um, what's another argument that people have made that you reject? So... Michael Humer has this, uh, I think it came out in 2008, this paper in defense of repugnance, where he mounts a number of arguments for a large number of skepticism. Yeah, so the, the anecdote is as follows. We imagine that an astronomer is giving a public lecture, and she mentions that the sun is going to die in 5 billion years. And then imagine that some member of the audience becomes notably agitated. And the astronomer tries to reassure this person, stressing the sun will not burn out for five billion years. The audience member then sighs with relief and they say, oh, five billion. 
I thought you said five million years. <laughs> so intuitively, this would be a very strange reaction for somebody to have. Mm. And the sort of thought that we're supposed to take from this is that mentally we're unable to sufficiently distinguish between five million and five billion. These very large numbers in our minds blur together in such a way that we're unable to appreciate the significance of the very, very large differences between these very, very large numbers. Yeah. A thousandfold difference. But yeah, <laughs> but you don't buy it. Uh, why is that? Yeah, so I'm skeptical that the sort of weirdness of the imagined audience members' reaction reflects something that's specific to large numbers as something that's specific to our attitudes towards time. So one thing you might expect is roughly that either people engage in a form of yeah, discounting, where ultimately they end up discounting the very far future to into complete insignificance. And so events that are 5 million years from now are viewed as more or less the same as events that are 5 billion years from now. Or they resist discounting and they're impartial across times. And then they care exactly as much about events that are 5 million years from now as events that are 5 billion years from now. Those, I think, are sort of the most psychologically realistic attitudes towards time that people might adopt. And so it would be very odd for someone to be very concerned about events that would occur in 5 million years' time, but not at all concerned about events that would occur in 5 billion years' time. And, I mean, one reason to suggest that it's specifically the dimension of time that is doing some kind of work here is to just think about a similar kind of case where similar kind of numbers are in play, but there's no issue about time. So the case I suggest in the paper is, you know, imagine that I knew, I came to believe it was certain that the US and China will go to war in this century. Now, yeah, it's one thing to learn that 5 million people would be killed in such a conflict. It's, yeah, obviously like a catastrophic tragedy. But I would react very differently if you told me that 5 billion people were to die in such a war. And I'd be kind of surprised if you were surprised by the fact that I was more worried, significantly more worried upon learning that the casualties would be 5 billion than that they would be 5 million. But of course, these are the same kind of numbers that are in play in Hume's example with the astronomer. And so that to me suggests that perhaps the issue of distance in time might be the thing that explains the oddity of the audience member's reaction in Hume's vignette, as opposed to something that specifically concerns our mental ability to grasp large numbers. Yeah. I guess in the in the case where 5 billion people die, if that was going to happen soon, that would suggest you have a 2 in 3 chance of dying in this war. Whereas in the 5 million case, it's only uh, 2 in 3,000. So, so be, uh, I guess you have a personal selfish motivation to, to treat them quite differently. But yeah, it does seem like time is being treated is is probably the key issue in that case. And, and yeah, people's discounting and so on. It's not really about the large numbers per se. But yeah, what's another argument people have made that you reject? There are so many. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So another thing is that some people have claimed that evidence of what's known as scope insensitivity mm. in the literature on what's known as contingent valuation supports this kind of large number scepticism. So I'll first have to sort of explain what this means. So contingent valuation is roughly a method that's used to assign monetary values to various goods that don't or don't ordinarily have market prices, typically by asking people about their willingness to pay to provide or protect this good, or the compensation that they would be willing to accept 
if this good were not to be provided. So that's contingent valuation. And there are various methodological concerns that arise in relation to this um, and that have been discussed extensively amongst economists. One especially sort of significant one is the phenomenon that's known as scope insensitivity, which is roughly the fact that people's willingness to pay for various goods doesn't increase appropriately in response to an increase in the size or scope of the good to be provided. So a very, very famous example of this, and the one that that almost always is cited, is this study by William Desvouge and colleagues, where respondents were asked how much their household would agree to pay each year in higher prices for wire net covers to save a certain number of birds from drowning in uncovered waste oil holding ponds. So one group of respondents was asked about their willingness to pay to prevent 2,000 birds dying each year. A different group of respondents were asked about their willingness to pay to prevent 20,000 birds from dying each year. And a third group were asked about their willingness to pay to prevent 200,000 birds from dying each year. And it turns out that these very large differences in numbers made virtually no difference in people's willingness to pay. So the sample mean in these three groups was $80 for the 2,000 birds, $78 for the 20,000 birds, and $88 for the 200,000 birds. And the sample median was $25 for each of the three groups. Yeah, so it seems like we should value the 100 times as many birds significantly. We should be willing to pay substantially more uh, more for that. But in, in practice, we're willing to pay barely any different amount at all. Yes, though, I mean, one thing that you might think is that people might sort of disagree with this or something like that. So one way in which you might criticise this particular study, say, is supporting large number scepticism is by highlighting that although I focused on the very large numbers that were mentioned, in the materials that were provided to people, some quite small numbers were also mentioned. Um, So in particular, it's mentioned that 2,000 birds is much less than 1% of the total population of migratory waterfowl, 20,000 birds is less than 1%, and 200,000 birds is about 2%, so respondents were told. So there are also some small numbers involved, And I've seen some suggestion that it's possible that in some sense, what people actually care about is fractions of the bird population or something along those lines. They're particularly concerned um, that we don't lose a very large fraction of, of of the population of birds. And so in some sense, they were dealing with small numbers because there were only small percentages involved. Now, you might might very reasonably think that that's just the wrong way to value birds. But that's an alternative explanation for what's going on. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it seems like if you're someone who, if you have this view, uh, like large number skepticism thing, where you're like, oh, people can't conceive of really uh, like differences between really large amounts. And so they kind of value them all the same. It seems like it might be very natural to also have small number skepticism where you're like, people can't tell the difference between one thousandth of the birds, one ten thousandth of the birds, one hundred thousandth of the birds, or, you know, one in a thousand chance, one in ten thousand chance, kind of famously people are really bad at evaluating risk once the odds get really low. You might just think people can kind of only evaluate things around, you know, 50% because that's where we have the most experience and it's easiest to see large percentage differences, I guess. So in a sense, like large number and small number skepticism seem like two sides of the same coin to me. Yeah, though, I guess these feel like in some sense numbers that aren't that small, one versus two or less than one versus two or something along those lines. I mean, in some sense, the sort of broader issue that's kind of in the background here is that in some sense you might well believe that there's no uniquely correct way to sort of number something. You know, anything could be regarded as an instance of, of a large, you know, sort of 
I think Frege has this example of a deck of cards, which is one deck of cards, but it's also 50... How many deck cards are in deck? 52, I think. <laughs> 53? <laughs> 52. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so you could attach the number one to this, this object or the number 52 to this object. And in some sense, what we want to know is, like, what's the morally significant way to number objects uh, or to impose numbers on this choice that people are faced with? Or more specifically, what is the way that people perceive as morally important um, for attaching numbers to this kind of problem? But yeah, I mean, there are other examples of, of this kind of scope insensitivity that, that in some sense deal with quite small numbers. So there's also this paper by Peter Diamond and colleagues, which is about protecting wilderness areas in Colorado, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And here the choice is between protecting one, two, or three out of a total of 57. And, and I guess, do they similarly find there that people are willing to pay about the same amount for one, two, or three? Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. Though again, here, I mean, in some sense, large numbers are also in play because if you look at like how many acres are involved, uh, it's it's a large number of acres. Yeah. So there's a bunch of other kind of empirical evidence that people bring forward that you raise in this paper, claiming that it supports large number skepticism when there's either like alternative interpretations that you think are like equally or like more plausible, or in fact, like they've just kind of made a conceptual error, and this doesn't really support large number skepticism at all. But I, after reading your paper, I still am a large number skeptic, I think. And by large number, I mean two or more. So <laughs> I think basically what goes wrong when people evaluate these cases is something along the lines of you ask them to say how much they're willing to pay to prevent these birds from drowning in an oil spill or or whatever. You can ask people like how much are they willing to pay for one bird or 10 birds or 100 birds. But the decision procedure is they picture a bird covered in oil or you know a bird suffering. And then they think intuitively, how bad is this? How much is my heart being pulled by this image of one bird? And then they decide how much to pay based on that. Now, it's not like exactly like that. I expect you'd see like some variation as the numbers went up from one to 10 to 100, say. Nonetheless, like most of the work is being done by the mental picture of how bad is this specific thing. And I think that this can help explain why people have the view that no number of people watching the World Cup that would justify allowing someone to be electrocuted. They picture one person watching the World Cup and they picture one person being electrocuted and they think, well, clearly the electrocution is way worse. And then they try to picture one person being electrocuted against 500 million people watching the World Cup. But all they do is, again, picture one person watching the World Cup because that's, that's all that you could really mentally imagine because you can only ever be one person at a time. And then they notice, well, this is just the same. This feels just as bad. So even though I've increased the number massively, my evaluation hasn't shifted. And so extrapolating upwards, there would be no number of people watching the World Cup that would change my judgment. In a moment, I'm going to explain that I don't share this judgment at all. So, so I, don't, I don't have this intuition. Um, and so I'm trying to like imagine like what might cause me to think this. Uh, but yeah, what, what do you make of that picture? Yeah, so one concern I might raise is the sort of psychological theory you've proposed might also seem to suggest that people should say, think it no more important or no, no better to say five lives as opposed to one life, say. The thought being, well, on the kind of story you told, I imagine the people who are over here, I can save this one person over here, and I imagine what their life would be like. And then when confronted with the five people over there, I imagine what one of their lives would be like. And I'm sort of mentally unable to multiply these lives. I'm in some sense still in the grip of just thinking about the single life and what that life would be like. But I think, in fact, people do believe it's more important to prioritise, you know, saving the five lives over the one life. So it must be some specific problem with their inability to grasp very large numbers that we have to invoke. Yeah, I mean, 
these experiments that you mentioned in the paper, they find that if you just so so they use this strategy where they would like get people and then they'd randomly ask different ones how much they'd be willing to pay for different numbers of birds. So the direct comparison couldn't be made. And so, you know, when you think about 20,000 birds, kind of you still just picture one or at least you don't even know how much you value one. So you start by picturing the one. I guess in the case with the same person, you like one after another put directly like one person or five people. I think people can immediately see that there's something wrong with valuing one the same as the five. It like allows them to engage a different mental process where they weigh them up against one another directly and say, well, the five, I mean, it kind of should be like five times as valuable, right? So there's probably like a different mental procedure going on here. So then you would say, well, why don't they do that with the World Cup case? Because they do have a chance to reflect still and think, well, there's way more, right? Yeah, that's right. So one of my particular criticisms of using this contingent valuation literature support to support large number scepticism is that these really dramatic examples of scope insensitivity, like the case of saving the birds from drowning in these waste oil holding ponds, those all arrive, yeah, as you said, when the experimental design involves separate evaluation. So different people, or sometimes uh, the same person at different times, but typically different people are asked to think about different numbers and their willingness to pay for different numbers. Yeah, they're asked about their willingness to pay to provide a benefit of a certain size or scope. And you don't get these effects if people are asked to state their willingness to pay under joint evaluation, where they have the two options side by side and can easily make comparisons. And yeah, as you mentioned, the sort of the intuitions that we're dealing with about this World Cup case or the repugnant conclusion, these do involve joint evaluation. We're simultaneously considering the two options that we can bring about. And yeah, for various reasons, as you mentioned, there's a sort of a view that joint evaluation facilitates the comparison of different options. It makes the problem informationally easier and judgments in joint evaluation are therefore more likely to be reliable, you might think. And so there's a kind of question about how much one can learn by looking at people's reactions to choices under conditions of separate evaluation and extrapolate from those cases to make judgments about what we should expect under conditions of joint evaluation, which is the kind of conditions we're dealing with when we reflect on cases like the World Cup case or the Republican conclusion. Yeah. Okay, so trying to bring back in the the big number thing, you can imagine that, so maybe the first pass thing is to imagine just the individual case. Uh, But then you're like, "Eh, I actually want to try to weigh up the number. And so you like try to picture a larger number of people watching the World Cup and think about how good that is. And so you strain to like, you imagine a big crowd of people all enjoying and watching the World Cup and having a great time. And you're like, no, it's like, that's still not enough to offset it. Even though you might begin to feel like some pull, uh, like as the crowd gets bigger, But at some point, you actually just like can't really picture any more. You've kind of maxed out like the number of people like watching the World Cup in some enormous like crowd and it's still not enough. Maybe like give up trying to picture any like greater good there because it just becomes so difficult to mentally imagine. Do you think that could be like a contributor to people uh, then concluding that there's no number that would be sufficient to offset it? Or am I being uh, too cynical of people's mental processes? Yeah, I think something like that might be true, but... I think I'm unconvinced of the extent to which these abilities to sort of pictorially imagine a situation are going to be the sort of deciding factor in people's judgments. So, you know, I might think if I ask people, is it better to save a trillion people or a trillion and one persons? I think most people would say that it's it's better to save the trillion and one than the trillion people. 
but but it feels easier to like analytically like reason through why that must be the case without like needing to try to picture the two different things it's like i imagine that the decision procedure that people use to spit out the answer that two trillion and one is better uh, is just like quite different than the one where they're trying to picture these almost maximally different like goods yeah so the conclusion of the paper is merely that the case for large number skepticism is as yet inconclusive and i think i sort of end the paper by encouraging people to do more research that would address this question more directly. It might be true that, in some sense, hypotheses along the lines that you suggested might be correct and might explain people's intuitions about these cases. But it is ultimately a sort of empirical question. And part of the claim I make is that the empirical existing literature does not warrant a conclusion of large number scepticism. But I certainly don't want to rule out that additional yeah, investigations could find more definitive evidence that would support large number scepticism. In particular, yeah, definitive evidence that would suggest some kind of inappropriate upper bound in people's ability to respond to very, very large numbers. But I do think, yeah, it's then a sort of an empirical question to which I don't think we know the answer to what extent when people reason about these large numbers, what is the sort of relative contribution of sort of bare ability to sort of picture in their minds this large collection of individuals versus their ability to recognise that in a more abstract or intellectual sense, what kind of numbers of individuals are involved and to be guided by those considerations. Yeah, as, as you can tell, I, I agreed with you that the arguments that people had put forward for large number scepticism um, in the past were, were much more wanting than I'd appreciated when I'd seen them uh, before. I'd, I'd kind of been uh, taken in by them, I guess, because I found the conclusion so intuitively plausible. I wasn't that tempted to, uh, to scrutinise the arguments people were making as maybe as much as I should have. I'd be curious to know what a survey would actually find about a wide selection of randomly chosen people from the public make of cases uh, like this. Because at least for myself, as I mentioned, I actually don't share this intuition at all, that there's no number of people who could watch the World Cup where it would be justified to allow someone to die by electrocution. And in fact, I think that intuition or the intuition that there's no number is actually crazy and ridiculous and completely inconsistent with like other actions that we take all the time. Like if you think about the World Cup final. So we're thinking about 500 million people watching live and all of the amount of effort that has gone into allowing this event to go ahead. Many people have died uh, in order to cause this event to go ahead. Like in the construction of the uh, in the construction of the stadiums, it's like very common for people to die. I mean, famously in Qatar, like tons of people have died in the construction of all of these stadiums. But even just in a normal case, when you're doing big construction works, people die. Having people come in to the stadium, probably some people died in car crashes, like at least one person might have died in a car crash so that everyone could get there. Or at least if that happened, we wouldn't think that was a decisive argument against holding the World Cup final that someone might well die in a car crash as a result of all of the traffic and all of the travel that's involved in it going ahead let alone the number of like lifetimes that are spent effectively watching <laughs> watching the game. Uh, I think I calculated this out at, at some point, but like I think many lifetimes basically are spent just watching this individual game because people don't live 500 million hours. <laughs> we live substantially less than that. And then on, on top of that, just think about the opportunity cost of hosting the World Cup uh, or even just the final. Like We're talking about tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars that go into allowing this event. Amounts that could have saved thousands of people's lives now we're apparently comfortable with that or at least we don't spend you know every time the world cup happens there's not a flurry of people saying that it's a moral outrage that this was allowed to happen rather than lives are saved it's an outrage that things happen in general because sometimes people die as a result sometimes there's industrial accidents <laughs> uh, and so we just have to shut the whole thing down indeed like shut down all entertainment as far as i can tell because it's just like 
you know, the death of one individual is given absolute priority over the entertainment of an unlimited number. So anyway, that's my rant about this case, where I was saying people who think that you should definitely, no matter what, like always shut things off in order to save the person from electrocution, I think need to think about what implications that would have for society as a whole and how basically it would necessitate the ending of basically everything that makes life worth living. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so this is a relatively widely discussed objection to this kind of principle. Yeah. I think the sort of the key issue that it raises is how one should formulate this view for conditions of uncertainty. So at least for the sort of cases of people dying in construction accidents in building stadiums that you mentioned, you might think the sort of salient characteristic of these cases that nobody knows in advance who will die. Nobody knows in advance that this particular person is going to lose their life so that these people can enjoy this sporting event. Whereas in the case that I described, it is certain that Jones will suffer these terrible harms. And it is also certain, as we stipulate, that these many people will otherwise enjoy this benefit from watching the event. So there's this question of, although it is uncertain who will die, we nonetheless, in some sense, know the outcome, that someone or other will lose their life. But we can, in some sense, at this cost, allow people to enjoy these, by comparison, relatively minor goods. And so, yeah, I think the sort of salient question that it raises for this view, and this is a a sort of ongoing subject of controversy in the current literature on this problem, is, yeah, how does this view work under risk? And in particular, should we think that a view of this kind must recognise something like a morally significant difference between identified and statistical victims? And yeah, I mean, there are indeed people who have argued that, roughly speaking, that is how we should understand a view of this kind as playing out when we understand cases of social risk-taking. There's a great paper by Johan Frick on this that appeared in Philosophy and Public Affairs a couple of years ago. But yes, it's very much addressed to this issue, which I think is a recognised sort of objection to these views which deny that we can aggregate very many minor benefits so as to outweigh a single significant harm. I think probably uh, Elizabeth Ashford was one of the first people to like, really make this significant that this view is overly demanding on us or maybe perceived as overly demanding on us in roughly the ways that you describe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just while you were talking, I got to calculate how many lifetimes are spent watching the World Cup final. And I think <laughs> if it takes, if it goes for two hours uh, and there's half a million people watching, then 1,437 lifetimes roughly are spent uh, just, just watching the game. Many, many multiples in one person's lifetime. Um, but yeah, so, so yeah. This, yeah there's a, so the like, statistical life versus identifiable life is kind of yeah classic issue. I suppose in as much as things become impermissible once we can identify victims, it would suggest that hypothetically, if we could get very good at predicting the future, yeah, let's say we got like, we built a fantastic model of the world that would allow us to identify what people would die when you build a building rather than being unsure about it. Then suddenly, like most of modern civilization would become impermissible because now we've turned statistical victims into individual victims. Uh, and well, and I guess I guess we also have to suppose that we couldn't act on this information. So it's like a Cassandra model, I suppose, that uh, can tell us who will die if we go ahead, but won't be able to stop them. Then in principle, suddenly, like vast numbers of activities that were previously allowed would now become unallowed. Uh, and it wouldn't matter how great the benefits were. I guess as long as there wasn't a sufficiently large benefit to a specific other identifiable individual. Yes. I mean, another sort of point that has been raised in relation to this is something like that if we imagine the full scale effect of the many prohibitions that would have to be enacted in order to comply with this kind of yeah, regime that you're imagining then cumulatively the burdens on particular individuals might indeed be very significant. Yeah. 
Yeah, do you want to um, maybe unpack the intuition about the weighing of harms versus benefits when they're you know, very small versus very large? If you personally feel this intuition that there's no, no number of small benefits that would outweigh a massive harm to an identifiable individual, I'm not, I'm not sure whether you actually do feel that intuition personally. I definitely feel the intuition. I'm not sure that I ultimately accept this view. Mm. In large part because, yeah, it's very difficult to make this view work in conditions of uncertainty. At one point, I thought it could be made to work. Um, <laughs> then I had a conversation over dinner with a philosopher from UCL, Joe Horton, who's very much against this kind of view. And I think he very much made me see that under conditions of risk, it's very difficult to get plausible answers from this kind of view. I'm still sort of uncertain. But like, yeah, I think there are good reasons to... Yeah, I mean, there are, there are many good reasons to be sceptical of this intuition and these cases involving how it operates under risk and its potential to be extremely demanding of us if we, in some sense, don't have the right take on how to deal with cases of risk. Yeah, I think these are, these are excellent reasons to query this intuition, but I certainly feel the intuition very strongly. I see. Yeah. So, and the risk issue is kind of a variation on the rant that I was giving, where you're saying like, there's many different things that we do that run the risk of someone, some identifiable individual suffering some calamity. And so, and so this would prohibit too much of our behavior. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The sort of people who die in building stadiums for is actually a sort of an issue that's been raised in this, in oh, this right. issue specifically. <laughs> oh, great. There are other examples. Like I can't remember who I got this one from, but take water fluoridation, for example. Um, I mean, very rarely it happens that there's an accident where fluoridation of the water causes someone to die from an excess of fluoride. I think this happened last time in Alaska in the 90s or something like that. Okay. So very rare, yeah. Yeah, or at least this is the last time it happened in the US uh, mm. or something like that. Yeah, and, and it's like how many cavities again, do you, you have to think, yeah, prevent? Yeah. It's a similar case. Uh, and I suppose in that case, you don't have the intuition that fluoridation has to be impermissible because uh, at some point someone might die. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, I wonder what is going on with the World Cup case that makes it different. Um, I wonder if there's something about the frivolity of the World Cup somehow that uh, raises different intuitions than the kind of healthcare versus healthcare case in the fluoridation of water. Well, I think insofar as you want to defend a view of this kind about aggregation, I think the line you would take is that under conditions of risk, each person's claim on you to be provided with some benefits needs to be discounted by the probability that they in particular will be benefited if you take some action. So under conditions of full certainty where one person will certainly die or suffer some very terrible harm unless we aid them and these many other people could otherwise certainly be provided with some comparatively trivial benefit, that person's very significant, very strong claim on us to be aided is not discounted at all, because it's fully certain that we would aid them significantly if we tried. By contrast, in the kind of cases where if we undertake some action, a random process will be initiated that we're very confident, perhaps certain, will significantly harm someone or other, but will with certainty provide comparatively minor benefits to a very large number of people. Each person's claim not to be significantly burdened by that very bad outcome that we know will be imposed on someone or other needs to be discounted by the probability that they in particular will be harmed. And therefore, each person's claim ultimately against you is not very strong and is not significantly stronger, and perhaps not stronger at all, than each person's claim on you to provide them with this sort of relatively minor benefit with certainty. 
the broader picture here is that ultimately what we need to do is we need to think about the strength of people's claims on us to provide them with particular benefits. We think that a person has a very strong claim on us to be provided with a very strong benefit with certainty. And such a claim cannot be outweighed by any number of minor claims that people have on us to be benefited in some modest way with certainty. But under conditions where everything is uncertain and there's no identified individual whom we know will be harmed by this random process that we initiate, although we know someone or other will be seriously harmed, each of these people who may be harmed in fact has only a relatively modest claim on us against undertaking this action, which is discounted in proportion to the probability that they in particular will be harmed. And therefore their claim is roughly of the same category of moral seriousness as the claims that others, or perhaps even that person themselves might have, to be benefited more or less certainly in this otherwise relatively modest way. That's the broad theoretical picture that's yeah developed by Johann Frick in this paper, and that I think you would otherwise, something along these lines is what you would wish to accept insofar as you want to defend yeah, a view that says you shouldn't aggregate the many minor benefits in the World Cup case, but you should be willing for us to run these societal risks that inevitably result in some person or other dying, but provide these large numbers of, of relatively modest benefits. Yeah. Hey, listeners, Rob here after the interview. We're about to discuss so-called evolutionary debunking arguments. The first half of this section made total sense to me, but I must admit the second half got too technical for me to completely follow. So there's a decent chance you're going to feel the same way. We ran out of time in the recording session, so I didn't have a chance to break down the arguments like we would normally normally hope to do in a case like this. Despite that, Kieran and I thought we should keep this section in anyway, for those of you who want to brave some more challenging philosophy. But don't feel ashamed if you want to skip over it. Okay, back to the conversation. Yeah, uh, zooming out a little bit, I, I guess... The arguments that people have raised about, you know, our inability to properly conceive of very large numbers of things might be called kind of psychological debunking arguments, or it's kind of deconstructing how we think about things and using that to show that our moral intuitions are wrong, or like not not trustworthy. But another class of debunking arguments that you spent quite a lot of time looking at are evolutionary debunking arguments, where basically people will reason that as a result of evolutionary pressures, we are inclined to form a particular view because that was selected in the ancestral environment. And so the fact that we have these moral intuitions as a result of these evolutionary pressures shouldn't be regarded as a very strong reason to, to endorse those intuitions. Well, was that an okay explanation of them? Yeah. In some sense, I guess the key issue isn't merely that they were selected for, because you might think that all kinds of mental dispositions that we have were selected for, but most of those belief-forming dispositions are reliable. So the sort of key claim that people typically advance in order to run these evolutionary debunky arguments is that there was selection for particular moral beliefs or the disposition to adopt particular moral beliefs. And these selection pressures can be explained without making any assumptions about the truth or, for that matter, falsity of these moral beliefs. In some sense, natural selection is indifferent to the truth or falsity of the moral beliefs that are favoured by natural selection in a way that natural selection is not indifferent to the truth or falsity of the kind of beliefs. uh, Does that tree exist? Yes, exactly. So ordinary perceptual beliefs, introspective beliefs, inductive inferences from the past to the future. All of those kind of cognitive dispositions you would expect are favoured only insofar as they are reliable guides to the truth. But people have tended to think that this doesn't seem very plausible for the case of the operation of natural selection on our moral psychology. Yeah. So 
that kind of argument makes intuitive sense to me and I think a lot of people, but you think that it shouldn't be regarded as a super strong argument. Yeah, can you can you flesh out why? Yeah, so in large part, I'm simply unconvinced by the arguments that have been taken to show that if these truth and difference selection pressures have operated in our past, then this sort of undermines our reasons for taking our moral intuitions or our evolved moral beliefs seriously. And so I think there are sort of three broad classes of arguments that have been used here. These arguments sort of invoke three different kinds of epistemological principles, principles that they think should govern our beliefs, and in particular govern when we should revise our beliefs in response to additional evidence. So one kind of argument that people sometimes make is a kind of Occam's razor style argument. So they claim very roughly that we should accept all and only the things that we are committed to as part of the best available explanation of our experience. And because they think the evolutionary debunking argument suggests that we can explain why we have the moral beliefs that we do without invoking any moral facts or any moral properties, this provides an argument by appeal to Occam's razor for supposing that in fact there are no such moral facts or moral properties corresponding to the moral beliefs that we have. A very closely related argument invokes a kind of principle of what's often called sensitivity as governing our beliefs. So very roughly, this is the claim that you ought to give up a certain belief that you hold if you discover that you would hold this belief even if it were false. And people think this applies in this case for the reason that the facts about natural selection that we've rehearsed, namely natural selection's indifference to the truth or falsity of the moral beliefs that it favours, that should lead us to suppose that the moral beliefs that we hold are moral beliefs that we would hold even if they were false. And therefore, by this, this sort of principle that I suggested earlier, that we will only hold beliefs that we don't have reason to think are insensitive to their own truth or falsity, we ought to give up these beliefs. Right, so these are sort of two key lines of argument. So on the one hand, you can question each of the principles that I've just outlined. For example, one worry that you might have about both of the principles that I've just suggested is that they can lend themselves somewhat straightforwardly to a very general kind of scepticism about the external world. So take the principle that we should accept only that which is required in the explanation of our experiences. I might worry that a principle of this kind gives us no reason to believe that there is an external world composed of familiar three-dimensional objects, as opposed to, say, that we're brains and vats whose experience is purely simulated, and in fact we don't have any hands, and virtually everything we believe about the external world is false. Similarly, the principle that one ought not to hold a belief if one knew one would hold this belief, even if it were false, suggests that one ought not to believe that one isn't a brain in a vat of the kind that I just described. For if we were, in fact, merely invatted brains and not people who have bodies, we would nonetheless believe that we are people who have bodies and not invatted brains who are trapped in a kind of computer simulation. The sort of the, the issue this obviously raises is what issue you take towards these sceptical hypotheses in general. I think most philosophers are inclined to believe that the correct theory of knowledge, the correct epistemology, should not license this kind of broad scepticism about the external world that seems to be supported by these principles. Even if you think that external world scepticism is actually somewhat plausible, one thing you might suggest here is that 
at the very least, insofar as these arguments rely on these principles, they perhaps suggest that our beliefs about right and wrong are in no worse a position than our beliefs that we have hands, say. And that seems like a pretty good, uh, you know, I mean, if you're just sort of calling more or less everything into question, that you would also call our moral beliefs into question. That might not be too surprising, but it doesn't seem to suggest any a special or particular problem with, with our moral beliefs. I see. I mean, couldn't I react and say, well, I am not sure whether the external world exists and I'm not sure whether I'm a brain in a vat. And I agree, like, I would like have similar experiences uh, in either case. And likewise, I'm just not sure about what moral facts are either, because I think that I would take this or that other position because of evolution either way. Because it's like, in this case, you're not asserting that the external world doesn't exist. You're just saying, I, it's hard for me to know. It's like, it's to some degree, it's yeah. unknowable. Uh, and it seems like it's a very plausible thing to both say that and to say that it's like moral facts are unknowable as well. Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, being uncertain is one thing. I'd take it the sort of the sort of the fully fledged scepticism that we're dealing with here is a view on which I have no reason to believe that I have hands, say, or I have no reason to believe that it is wrong to torture innocent people or something like that. It's not merely a matter of being uncertain, but a matter of, in some sense, completely suspending belief because one thinks that one has no reason to believe any of these things. That's a little bit more extreme and therefore might seem a little bit less inviting. But yes, I mean, one could in principle be willing to embrace a kind of general scepticism about many of our beliefs, including our beliefs about the external world. But certainly many of those who have formulated and pressed these evolutionary debunking arguments are not fans of a kind of generalized scepticism and want to try to highlight some specific problem that applies to our moral beliefs. And so one problem is that the kind of epistemic principles that I've just outlined have this problem that they lend themselves perhaps somewhat too easily to constructing general sceptical arguments. So that's one kind of worry that we might have about these arguments. And then a second worry that I think I sort of emphasise more is a kind of worry... Yeah, I mean, so take this view that says we should rely on Occam's razor and we shouldn't be willing to admit anything into our picture of the world which doesn't feature in the best explanation of our experiences. So there was like a big controversy that started in 1977 about whether moral facts ever explain our moral intuitions or our moral beliefs, which begins with this very famous thought experiment by Gilbert Harmon, where I think you would turn down an alley and you see some children setting a cat on fire and you instinctively form the belief that what they're doing is wrong. And the question that Harmon wanted to discuss was, does the wrongness of setting fire to the cat, does the wrongness of what the children are doing, does that explain why you believe that, in fact, what they're doing is wrong? And, uh, you know, people take different stands on this debate. Some people have said no, and some people have said yes. Mostly sort of people who identify with a kind of naturalist, realist view of ethics have taken the view that, yes, indeed, the wrongness of burning the cat explains why you think that burning the cat is wrong. A sort of a naturalist, realist view is roughly a view on which, indeed, there are objective facts about right and wrong. But these are natural facts similar in kind to the kind of facts that are investigable by the empirical sciences, or they are themselves facts of a kind that are amenable to empirical investigation. So there's been this long-standing debate about whether moral facts enter into the explanation of our moral beliefs. And you might think that this discussion about evolutionary debunking arguments is in some sense raising just the same issue. Because 
at least certainly when the appeal is made to Occam's razor, the idea is that we can in some sense show that moral facts are not ever needed to explain uh, moral beliefs. And so one sort of worry that I raised for that line of argument is that in and of themselves, evolutionary facts do not show that moral considerations are irrelevant in explaining why we have the moral beliefs we do. They only show that such facts are explanatorily irrelevant in accounting for why those beliefs were selected for in the first place. So it can, in principle, be true that some fact figures in the explanation of why particular organisms within their lifetimes acquire a certain trait without being part of the explanation for why those traits were selectively advantageous in the sense that had they arisen from any other cause within the organism's lifetime, they would nonetheless have been equally advantageous. So in this paper I have, I use this very stylized example, which is wholly fictional, so far as I know, of sort of, yeah, insects that acquire a green coloration by eating a certain kind of moss during a juvenile stage. And having this green coloration is very important for their survival because it allows them to become camouflaged, but it's completely irrelevant to the explanation of why it is important to be green, that one becomes green by eating this kind of moss. Yeah. And so the, the connection to evolution of the arguments, <laughs> which is perhaps a little bit hard to see, is... I see it, Andreas, but can you explain it for the audience? <laughs> yeah, so it could in principle be true that moral facts enter into the explanation of our moral beliefs by virtue of explaining why we acquire the beliefs that we do mm. in the course of our lifetimes without entering into the explanation for why those beliefs may have been selectively advantageous to hold over evolutionary time. And nothing in the evolutionary debunking arguments suggests that this is not the case. And basically, this earlier debate that arose from this argument by Gilbert Harmon and this example with the cat being set on fire, that was all about this question. Do moral facts figure into the explanation for why we adopt the moral beliefs that we do in the course of our lives and in the course of our experience? And some philosophers thought the answer to that question was yes. And at least I claim that the kind of evolutionary debunking arguments that invoke, say, Occam's razor, provide no reason for those philosophers to think that they were wrong about that. Okay, yeah. Though, of course, you might think they're wrong for independent reasons. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Um, we are running out of time, and I've got another section, so we'll have to push on from this one. But is there a, something that people could go and read that like, uh, somewhat sums up your take on evolutionary debunking arguments? Um... People can read my PhD thesis online, which is the best summary of what I believe. But yeah, I mean, the kind of points that I've just been discussing are best captured in this paper that I published in Analysis called Evolutionary Debunking Arguments and the Proximate Ultimate Distinction. Okay. Uh, we'll stick up a link to both of those. And uh, yeah, if anyone properly reads Andreas's PhD thesis, then uh, I guess I guess drop him an email and let him know. Um, <laughs> what's an important way your philosophical views have changed over the last 10 or 15 years? Perhaps my, those are my views that have changed the most, or the most frequently at least, are my views about meta-ethics. So very roughly my views about the sort of ultimate metaphysical nature of, of right and wrong. I think about 15 years ago, I was probably an undergraduate still then. <laughs> um, and at that point, I think I was very strongly sold on some form of anti-realism. Mm. Some form of, in particular, moral error theory or nihilism seemed very plausible to me. And then I became a naturalist realist of the kind that I described earlier. So I thought that there probably were objective facts about right and wrong. And these were ordinary natural facts of, a, of the same kind as of the kind of facts studied in the empirical sciences. 
Then I became a non-cognitivist for a while. So this is roughly the view that moral judgments are not beliefs that purport to represent the world as being a particular way, but more like desires, more like a way of taking up a practical stance to the world. And I held on to that view for quite a long time. And then more recently, I switched over to non-naturalist realism. Uh, So the view that there are objective moral facts, and these are not facts of the kind, fundamental principles governing which are amenable to empirical investigation. Um, I see. Um, (laughs) Metaethics sounds hard. What could listeners look at if they wanted to understand your current view of metaethics? Um, I think Michael Humer's book, Ethical Intuitionism, is a very good defense of the kind of view that I'm quite attracted to at this point. Yeah. Okay. Might get humor on the show at some point. He seems like a really, uh, really fun character. Yeah, you wrote an article years ago saying that you didn't think giving 10% of one's income was likely to be negative for someone's well-being, you know, if they had the kind of middle-class existence in a rich country uh, like you do. Yeah. How do you think that stands up today? Does it match your experience as well over the years? Yeah. I mean, it definitely seems to match my own experience of, yeah, having taken this giving what we can pledge. Yeah. I mean, I think to a large extent that hasn't really been a burden for me at all, in large part because it's made me part of this this fantastic community of people that I wouldn't otherwise have been a part of, um, which which wasn't really the focus of the kind of research to which I was referring way back then. Um, yeah, so it's been a while since I looked into this literature, but I think I remember at one point worrying that the replication crisis had probably failed many of the results on which I relied and seeing if this was the case and not, in fact, finding that there were sort of significant instances of failed replications of some of the research on which I was relying in that paper. I think that was a, a couple of years ago at this point, so that might no longer be the case. But yeah, my impression, at least at that time, was that much of the research on which I was relying was still acceptable at this point. Yeah. What's a question or two in the field of global priorities research that you're uh, excited about that might not be already very prominent uh, among the audience? One thing that's kind of work in progress that I'm especially excited about is a paper that's being worked on by Jacob Barrett and Lauren Frixell at GPI, the Global Priorities Institute where I'm based. Um, And so this is about the sort of neglectedness heuristic that's used yeah, by 80,000 hours, sort of in prioritizing amongst different projects. And, and yeah, it's widely accepted or widely used amongst effective altruists. And yeah, so roughly the neglectedness heuristic says that we should prioritize working on causes that are neglected, typically because it's assumed that there are diminishing returns in different cause areas. And there's been this sort of concern that this may not always be true, and in particular may not be true in political contexts where it's often extremely important that one is able to reach some kind of tipping point where if enough people contribute, then some kind of threshold is crossed and some kind of desirable outcome is brought about in that kind of setting. And even in that case where you sort of know that there are such tipping points, there are arguments that you should think that in expectation the sort of benefits decrease at the margin. I think there's, there's some uh, early work by Owen Cotton Barrett on this. And there's, there's lots of stuff to go into on this. But yeah, Jacob and Lauren are working on this paper where, as I recall from when this was presented at a workshop, they are going to show that, in fact, this neglectedness heuristic does mislead us in some important socio-political contexts. And that in such contexts, it can be more important or, or better to follow a kind of bandwagoning heuristic of joining in where many other people are already piling on. 
Fantastic. Yeah, we'll uh, if, if that's online, we'll find it and uh, stick up a link to it. It's it's definitely not out yet. Oh, it's definitely not out. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's definitely sort of work that they're still uh, working on. I've seen a conference presentation of this, but I don't think any paper is publicly available or shared yet. Okay. Uh, I think there's other critiques of the neglectedness heuristic that are out there. So maybe we'll try to find the best one and stick up a link to that instead. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess, yeah, it's uh, it's almost 8.30. So regrettably, it's time to release you back into the wild. So there's one final question is uh, from another one from the audience. On a more personal note, I'd be curious to know what influence Derek Parfit has had on Andreas, both intellectually and personally. Uh, as far as I know, they were both at All Souls, although I'm not sure whether they were there at the same time. Uh, but generally, Parfit seems to be referenced a lot in, in GPI papers. So I'd be curious to know well, yeah, what influence he's had. Yeah, so unfortunately, Derek retired from All Souls the year that I became a fellow of All Souls. And so I didn't actually have a chance to interact with him very much. I mean, sort of through his work, philosophically, he's been an extraordinary kind of influence on me. But yes, I didn't get that much chance to interact with him in person. One year we did set the philosophy paper for the examination fellowship together, which was, yeah, it was a kind of an interesting experience in that his sort of approach to setting exam questions was, as I recall, that we should try by and large to recycle past questions and avoid so far as possible raising questions that are kind of supposed to be tricky or require you to approach a familiar topic from an unfamiliar angle, which I think are otherwise questions of a kind that are beloved of people who set philosophy exams, at least in Oxford. I think his view was something like, the best philosophers are not always quick on their feet. And so exams shouldn't require them to reason about a topic in a completely unfamiliar way, as opposed to giving them an opportunity to just tell us the arguments and ideas they've already developed and internalised. At the time, I thought this was sort of bizarre, but over time, I've become more and more inclined towards this kind of view and have become more and more inclined to rely on this sort of approach in cases where I've been called upon to set exams. Yeah, I guess maybe that's experience over the years that also giving people quirky questions that throw them off maybe introduces noise into the examination process in a in a way as well. I suppose that's kind of the idea about like people thinking quickly on their feet is that uh, some people will get lucky and have good ideas quickly on the feet and other people uh, won't. And that's uh, not really measuring the underlying philosophical ability, which uh, maybe requires a bit more time to come to fruition. Yeah. All right. Well, my guest today has been Andreas Mergensen. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Andreas. Thanks so much for having me. Three quick notices today. First off, we're currently working to hire a full-stack web developer to help improve and build out our job board. You can find out all about that role at 80,000hours.org slash latest, or check out the job board as it currently exists at 80,000hours.org slash jobs. Applications for that one close on the 26th of September. Second, we've recently started putting out weekly newsletters covering some of the most important things we think we learned that week. A lot of that content isn't available anywhere else. So if you'd like to keep track of what our research team here is thinking about and where they're changing their mind, you can join that list at 80,000hours.org slash newsletter. Finally, I've mentioned the show Real Dictators before on here uh, as one of my favorite podcasts to listen to for pleasure. But I just wanted to remind people about it because I've been so enjoying their recent biographies of Napoleon and Pol Pot, among others. Another podcast you might be interested in is The Most Interesting People I Know, made by my friend Garrison Lovely. It's a long-form interview show like this one and attempts to cover similar themes, but more through the lens of US progressive politics, seeing as how Garrison is American and personally feels a lot of affinity for the left. It's inherently interesting to me to see how the ideas we talk about here are interpreted overseas and by people with a really diverse range of political backgrounds. Sadly, Garrison isn't actively making new episodes just now, but maybe he'll resume sometime in future. 
One of my favorite interviews on that one was episode 16, Andres Gomez Emilson on solving consciousness and being happy all the time. And speaking of Andres's, don't miss my interview with Andres Jimenez Soria about the Shrimp Welfare Project, which is over on our other show, ADK After Hours. It's just very good. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ben Cordell and Beppe Rodvik. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.